Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 250th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this episode marks a pretty special milestone for me, Matt Whitehurst, who records and edits the vast majority of our episodes, and really all of us at The Hollywood Reporter. So thank you for joining us. This episode is presented by the HBO limited series Sharp Objects, starring Amy Adams, Patricia Clarkson, and Eliza Scanlon. The New York Times has called this summer's smash hit a mesmerizing, meticulously constructed, and transfixing thriller for your consideration in all Golden Globes and SAG Awards categories. As our regular listeners know, each episode of Awards Chatter is usually comprised of an opening segment in which I speak with someone smart about something interesting going on in the biz, and then a contender interview in which I spend on average about an hour interviewing someone who is in the running for an Oscar, Emmy, or Tony. Today, for the first time, that opening segment is going to be just me talking to you about how this podcast got started and grew into what it is today, and why it means a lot to me and, apparently, to a lot of you. But then, we will go to our usual contender interview, and we made sure to secure someone befitting such a special occasion. Namely, one of the most influential, controversial, prolific, and distinguished filmmakers of our time, or any other. A small, scrappy, tough-as-nails New Yorker behind such films as She's Gotta Have It, School Days, Do the Right Thing, which might be my favorite movie of all time. I have its poster framed and hanging on the wall in my bedroom. Mo Better Blues, Jungle Fever, Malcolm X, Crooklyn, Four Little Girls, He Got Game, Summer of Sam, The Original Kings of Comedy, Bamboozled, 25th Hour, Inside Man, Miracle at St. Anna, Chirac, and this year, Black Klansman for which he might land his first-ever Best Director Oscar nomination, the iconic Spike Lee. But again, before we go to my conversation with Spike, which we recorded yesterday at his production company, 40 Acres and a Mule, in what he calls the Republic of Brooklyn, I'd like to take a walk down memory lane and reflect on this podcast's 250 episodes, which have resulted collectively in 10.8 days' worth of content, thanks to a lot of hard work by not just myself but a number of other people who I want to acknowledge, and well over 8 million listens, thanks to you. In a way, it all really started with my friend Jesse Katz. She was the assistant to The Hollywood Reporter's editorial director and was and is a very creative person who wanted to branch out beyond that job, even if it meant staying after hours. Jesse was into podcasts as they were just becoming a big thing and figured that The Hollywood Reporter really ought to have some. 
There was not a lot of interest from others here at that time, so she just went about gathering the equipment and software necessary to do it on her own and grabbed a few other people who worked here in various capacities, our social media editor and others at the time. And together, they made our first podcast here, which involved dissecting episodes of the TV shows Girls and Mad Men, starting in early 2014, and then airing those conversations as podcasts known as Girls on Girls and Girls on Men. These were done totally independently. I don't know how many people even knew at The Hollywood Reporter that they existed, Jesse coordinated not only the other staff members and the content of those podcasts, but also their recording and editing. They went up via SoundCloud. I was even invited to participate in one as an honorary girl for the day, I guess. But it really piqued my interest that this was maybe where things were heading. And so with Jesse's help and encouragement, I went about recording several interviews with people at the TCM Classic Film Festival, Shirley MacLaine, Christopher Plummer and embedding the audio of those interviews into articles summarizing them. I also did this with Tab Hunter, who was promoting a documentary in which he appeared. I did it with a number of the Best Original Song Oscar nominees in early 2015. These were just standalone podcasts. They went up under the banner of THR Podcasts, I think. But it was all sort of laying the groundwork for what would come later. Really, I think a big turning point for a lot of people was when President Obama while still in office, went on Mark Maron's podcast, schlepping all the way to his garage in the summer of 2015 and giving him a good chunk of time. I think a lot of people at that point heard about it and said, wait a minute, what are podcasts and why are they important enough for the president of the United States to do? And so there was greater and greater interest here on our end. My original attempt at a regular podcast was one that I did with my now nonagenarian friend, Marcia Nassiter, who was the first woman ever to reach the level of vice president at a Hollywood studio. We always had fun discussions and debates about movies. She's an Academy member and was game to record these with me. And so for a brief period, we had a podcast that was called, at her suggestion, The Geezer and the Kid. That was fun. All of this was just sort of getting us into the idea of how to do a podcast and how they worked and how much work went into them and whether or not anybody cared, and, and we found that people increasingly did. And I must give credit to Matt Bellany, who was, back in 2015, our deputy editorial director, now is our editorial director, who really, at that point, began to egg it on that we should, heading into the 2015-2016 awards season, have a podcast that was, throughout the awards season, and specifically just me doing what I've always done during award seasons, interviewing the top talent who like to avail themselves to me during that time of year because it's advantageous to them. Let's take advantage of that and not just do those as written interviews, which are fine, but also capture audio. This was not something that at the time other people were doing. There are now tons of these podcasts where people try to corral award season talent to come on and do interviews, and I'm thrilled that that has happened. But at that time, there really wasn't one in fact, one of my colleagues slash competitors at another outlet heard that we were doing this and thought at the time that a podcast would somehow threaten his video series. Obviously, video has nothing to do with podcasts, and that was a deliberate decision on our part from very early on because we felt that based on our prior experience with podcasts, introducing video could really throw things off. People sort of with just a Larry King-style microphone in front of their face looking across the table at somebody else – 
tend to open up to a greater extent than they would if they feel they're on camera and they have to worry about in the back of their head how they're looking and things like that. So with Matt's encouragement, we decided to start a podcast with that format. He was adamant that we call it Awards Chatter, which was a title that I really resisted because I was concerned that having the word awards in the title might dissuade some people from being guests because it would seem too overtly about campaigning. But I lost that battle, and I'm actually happy to have done so because I think more and more that the title is a cute one with a bit of a double meaning, and we've really grown into it. We also had a logo design in the early days, which remains our logo to this day, designed by a product designer here named Andrew Elder. Our launch was coordinated by Dan Strauss and Nathan McGowan. Dan's no longer here. Nathan still is. But it all led up to 9.45 a.m. on September 6, 2015, in a bungalow in Telluride, Colorado, of all places, where I was covering the Telluride Film Festival and retained a freelance recorder. And we met up with three people, Danny Boyle, Kate Winslet, and Seth Rogen, who were there with their new film, Steve Jobs, which had had its world premiere the night before. And we sat down and did a, a, a nice conversation. The episode posted with edits by a freelance guy who I don't think I've ever even met named John McDonald. And it went live on September 9th, 2015. That was the beginning of Awards Chatter. Soon after that, the format began to change to focus on just one individual's life and career, with the exception of a few roundtables that we did for various reasons, song nominees, we could get a bunch together, or Tony nominees, we could get a bunch of the acting nominees together, but also because it's tough to coordinate multiple people's schedules, and really, most of all, because I find it more interesting to do a deep dive into an individual than to do a deep dive into a specific film. So the bottom line was that we ended up adopting this approach where you're only going to come on by yourself unless your life really has been inextricably linked with someone else's for most of it, professionally at least. So that was the case with, for instance, Michael Barker and Tom Bernard, the two guys who have run Sony Classics for many years and worked together long before that. But we also decided, let's make this an all-encompassing interview to the extent that we tell people, we're going to have you on once and never again. So let's make sure that we make it count because to have you come back after we've been through your entire life and career just seems like it would be unnecessary and repetitive. We'd rather do it really well once, make it count, and you know, not retread the same territory in the future. Maybe that will change in the future. Maybe we'll say you know, after five years have passed or something and you've accumulated a, a batch more work, then we'll come on and focus on that. But as of now, I think it's a pretty reasonable rule. And there are sort of carve-outs where you have somebody like Lady Gaga, who's been on our podcast twice, once with Diane Warren promoting a song that they did together back before we had our sort of hard rule about solo people, and then also once with a group of Oscar nominees for Best Original Song. She would certainly be welcome again as a solo guest, and hopefully that will happen before this season is over. She's certainly worthy. But this whole enterprise has taken us to a lot of different locations. We try to do many of our recordings at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, either in our atrium conference room or in the office of Tom Seeley, who's a supporter of the podcast, who also coordinates a lot of our digital efforts. We've yet to actually create a studio here for ourselves. We're hoping to get that soon, but we make do. Often we're heading out on location as well. I can't tell you how many different hotels and conference rooms we've been in throughout the cities of Los Angeles and New York, probably more than just about anybody else I know. 
also, we've ended up in some pretty cool places, whether it's Warren Beatty's home library or the offices of Lauren Michaels and Ryan Murphy, Chris Jenner, Chuck Lorre, Samantha B, Michael Eisner, Marta Kaufman, Jay Leno, Kobe Bryant, William Shatner, Dana Brunetti, Michael Keaton, Aaron Sorkin, and Judd Apatow, the living rooms of Lady Gaga and Jill Soloway, the dining rooms of James Lipton and John Stamos, Sally Field's kitchen, Barry Jenkins' studio apartment, Adam McKay's pool house, Jimmy Kimmel's guest house, J.J. Abrams' editing suite, Billy Bob Thornton's movie trailer, the read-through room for Jane Fonda's show, James Corden's show's conference room, Kenan Thompson's pot-smoke-filled 30 Rock dressing room, Snoop Dogg's pot-smoke-filled recording studio, and the list goes on. We've also done these in cities beyond L.A. and New York. We did Eddie Redmayne, Ruth Nega, Benedict Cumberbatch, Rob Reiner, and Rosamund Pike in Toronto, Saoirse Ronan and Miles Teller in Savannah, Lenny Abrahamson, Tom McCarthy, and Sam Rockwell in Santa Barbara, Dick Costello and Justin Lin in San Francisco, and the list goes on. Sometimes when we leave our home base, we have little control over the situation. We tell people that we need to do it in a place where we can control the surrounding noise, but sometimes you can only do that so much. To give you a few examples, with Lorne Michaels, we did it in his office at 30 Rock, which has a window looking down onto Studio 8H, where SNL is recorded, and where on that particular afternoon, the SNL band would occasionally burst into noise rehearsing in the background on top of Lauren's cell phone going off and other things kind of going awry. I had to pretend that I was staying cool, but I was panicked beyond belief that none of the audio was actually going to be usable at the end. In the end, it actually added quite a bit of ambiance, and you really felt like you were there in the belly of the beast where Lauren does what he does. So it all worked out, but that was certainly a stressful one. We ended up with a little table in the middle of a giant soundstage to record Lin-Manuel Miranda. Kate Winslet's solo episode, she had originally, as we said, done our first episode, and then we brought her back for a solo one, was done in Santa Monica. And just as we were about to begin, across the street, we hear a horrendous noise. Turned out to be a machine either cleaning carpets or sucking sewage out of an apartment or something. We had a similar issue with jackhammering across the street from the Four Seasons when we were sitting down with Glenn Close. Massive construction started in the middle of our interview with Aaron Sorkin. We had wedding music playing outside of the room as we sat down with Melissa McCarthy with nowhere else to go. And when we did our interview with Barry Jenkins just days before Envelope Gate, there was pouring torrential rain on his entirely window-enclosed apartment in downtown L.A., And we just had to make do of it, and I had to have great faith in our editor, who I think for each of the examples I listed was Matt Whitehurst, and he has always come through with God knows what kind of software or whatever to clean up the situation, but he has had a lot to clean up over the years. So plenty of strange situations of that nature, but maybe nothing was stranger over the course of this podcast history Then what happened on June 24th, 2018, in response to our June 19th article in which our Jimmy Fallon episode was embedded, that podcast marked Fallon's first interview in many months. He had sort of gone quiet in the aftermath of the Donald Trump hair ruffling incident on his show, which had been widely thought to have cost him an Emmy nomination and his spot atop the ratings and just generally a lot of unpleasantness. Well, Jimmy was good enough to have us to his office at 30 Rock and really opened up about that topic and understandably became emotional talking about how painful the whole experience had been for him, particularly the aftermath of it when he felt that people were trying to kick him while he was down. 
so we had this very open, moving conversation. And then five days after that article posted on our website, who tweets about it but the president of the United States himself, Donald Trump, who tweeted, quote, at Jimmy Fallon is now whimpering to all that he did the famous hair show with me where he seriously messed up my hair and that he would have now done it differently because it is said to have humanized me. He is taking heat. He called and said monster ratings. Be a man, Jimmy, close quote. So that was a little weird to have the president of the United States tweeting in reference to our podcast, and he certainly was. That was the only interview Jimmy Fallon had done at any time in recent history. But, you know, if there's anything that Donald Trump's good for, I guess it's calling attention to things, and that podcast traffic exploded in the aftermath of that. So that was that. I felt sorry for Jimmy, but we'll take the clicks. Some other fun facts, looking back over our 250, there's only been one episode that was tied to a project that never wound up seeing the light of day, the one with Benedict Cumberbatch, which was tied to The Current War, a film that had just premiered in Toronto where I sat down with Cumberbatch and that was to be distributed by the Weinstein Company, but actually never was after the revelations about Harvey Weinstein emerged. That was obviously an unusual situation there. We've only had one father and son both appear on the podcast, Carl Reiner and Rob Reiner, and one father and daughter appear on the podcast separately. That was Rashida Jones, who was part of the opening segment ahead of the Quincy Jones episode. And we may soon add to that list. It looks like we might have John David Washington on here soon. So along with his dad, Denzel, who has done this podcast, that would be another father and son. We have had one set of spouses, Justin Timberlake and Jessica Biel, and one set of ex-spouses, Billy Bob Thornton and Angelina Jolie. There's also only been one episode of this podcast that I myself actually had nothing to do with. And that was when, in the immediate aftermath of Oscar So White exploding, Janice Min, our editorial director at the time, sat down with the Academy's CEO, Don Hudson, and then-President Cheryl Boone Isaacs for an interview that resulted in a cover story but that was also recorded, so we decided to air that on this podcast as it was our only real podcast at that point. And again, our podcast was early enough that for many of our guests, it was and may still be their first podcast experience. We can say that was the case with Will Smith, Meryl Streep, Barbara Broccoli, and Eddie Murphy. Oprah had participated in a podcast about her show's impact, but ours was her first encompassing her whole life. For some of our guests, it may have also been their last podcast experience. We recorded episodes with Harvey Weinstein and Louis C.K. not long before their misconduct was exposed by the Me Too movement. And we had Kevin Spacey scheduled to come on and talk to us about all the money in the world. That date was about a week or two after the date on which his career fell apart. And then on a happier note, we did have one guest who appeared on our podcast as the final interview that he ever did while he was still considered the biggest loser. I'm talking about Kevin O'Connell, a sound re-recording mixer who had lost 20 Oscars over 33 years, but a week after sitting down with us, won an Oscar for the first time on his 21st nomination. That was terrific. I'm proud to say that our guests have been very diverse. At least one guest was a person of color in 54 episodes, and at least one guest was a woman in 92. And we've also had transgender, transsexual, and gender non-binary guests. None of this was conscious or deliberate or trying to meet numbers. This was merited by the talent of our guests, and that's the way the cookie crumbled. Some other interesting stats. Our oldest guest was Carl Reiner, the legendary writer, director, and actor who was 95 when we sat down with him and who is now 96. Our youngest guest ever was the wonderful child actress Brooklyn Prince, who was speaking to us about the Florida Project when she was just seven. Our longest episode at 2 hours and 13 minutes 
is the one that we did with Marvin Heyer, the rabbi who runs the Simon Wiesenthal Center and the Museum of Tolerance and who has won two Oscars for documentaries. And so we obviously had a lot to talk about with him. Meanwhile, our shortest episode at just 23 minutes is the one we did with Hugh Grant. He is indeed a charming guy, but it turned out we didn't have that much to say to each other. Meanwhile, unfortunately, we've lost three people who have appeared on our podcast over the years, the actors Robert Vaughn and Tab Hunter, and the producer Craig Zayden. Something you might be interested to know is that our 10 most listened to episodes at this time, it's always changing, are counting backwards, number 10, Jake Gyllenhaal, number 9, Angelina Jolie, number 8, Rachel Brosnahan, number 7, Samuel L. Jackson, number 6, Allison Williams, number 5, Jerry Seinfeld, number 4, Kate Winslet, number 3, Jimmy Fallon, number 2, William Shatner, and number 1, Will Smith. In the run-up to this 250th episode, I asked our listeners via my Twitter feed to let us know what your favorite episodes of our podcast have been, and a great many of you responded, which I really appreciate, and we'll share your picks counting down backwards. Number 10, Matthew McConaughey. Number 9, Gal Gadot. Number 8, Kara Knightley. Number 7, Denzel Washington. Number 6, Jennifer Lawrence. Number 5, Aaron Sorkin. Number 4, Emma Stone. Number 3, Sterling K. Brown. Number 2, Judith Light and number one, Oprah Winfrey. So thank you for letting us know that. It's very nice to hear that episodes spanning our entire podcast history have apparently resonated with you. That survey is obviously not entirely fair to our most recent guests, probably 248 through 250 or so. That's Steve McQueen, James Burroughs, and Spike Lee, but they'll be considered in future surveys. My own top 10 I want to talk about because I think I can share a little bit of a backstory about each of these that you might find interesting. And there is some overlap with your picks, but also some others. For me, number 10 is also Matthew McConaughey. It was just such a fun, relaxed, wide-ranging conversation. He came in with nothing else on his agenda that afternoon. His publicist was lovely. It was the afternoon of Yom Kippur, this most recent Yom Kippur. We were heading towards breakfast. I had had a little liquid, I will admit, but not food. And Matthew came in with that knowledge and was kind of teasing me about it. We just had a nice report right off the bat. All right, Matthew, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. We always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? While we're on the basics, I just want to say today is Yom Kippur. Yes. Yes, and it's about 5.45, and you're supposed to be fasting all day. Is that correct? That's true. How's that going? Well... It's gone well up until about a few minutes ago, but can we, I'm going to break my fast with you. Will you have a mint? Absolutely. Okay. All right. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat And then he really opened up in a way that I think you rarely hear a star of his stature do. There was a lot of prep that went into teeing up some great stories, and I think it helps that he is such a folksy, likable, great storyteller. But it all kind of came together in a way that you always hope these do, and so Matthew McConaughey is number 10 for me. Number nine is RuPaul, something I never would have imagined would be the case when I was heading into that. Not because I don't admire RuPaul, but I just really didn't know that much about RuPaul until I started prepping for that conversation. And to be honest, I had a lot to learn. RuPaul was very patient with me, took a lot of time to kind of walk me and listeners through what drag is, how it came to be a big part of RuPaul's life, why it means so much to so many people, and kind of talk about something that is only recently reaching a large segment of our culture here in America. You know, I'd seen drag in 
media. I mean, Bugs Bunny was my first introduction to drag. (laughs) Even his approach to it, which was a tool to get what he wanted out of it. And mostly it was... He was winking as he did it. He was being funny. And where someone would be chasing him, and they'd, I guess it was um, Elmer Fudd. Is that who That's chased probably, him? Yeah. He, Elmer would open the door, and Bugs Bunny would turn around, covering his breast and, and groin area, and go, ah, you know, and scream. <laughs> all, all the while winking, knowing that that would make Elmer Fudd close the door real quickly and go, oh, I've just done something wrong. <laughs> Buying Bugs Bunny more time. Right. Brilliant. Yeah. But, and, you know, in cartoons, traditionally in our culture, my tribe have been able to sneak in subversive, wink-wink ideology into pop culture. Because the unwashed masses, if you set it to a point blank, right. they would burn you as a witch. So this is the way we've been able to get that information into pop culture. RuPaul was just such a pleasure to visit with, opened up in a way that many guests don't, even when we're talking about less personal things, and I think chose to use this as a teachable moment for a lot of people. And for that, I was very grateful, and it's been actually lovely to occasionally run into RuPaul since then. Number eight for me is Eddie Murphy. It was, again, Eddie's first ever podcast. He rarely does interviews of any sort, particularly in recent years. He doesn't have a reputation of being a particularly easy person to deal with. He became a star in the 80s when stars were treated as infallible. Demands were met a little easier, and egos and diva-type behavior was more tolerated. Well, I knew that that was potentially what I would be dealing with, and sure enough, Eddie came in with a bit of an entourage who then sat down behind him kind of looking at me as I conducted the interview. And I think within a minute or so, we came pretty close to having Eddie walk out on me I asked him a fairly personal question about his early years and some stuff that he'd had to deal with within his family, and I think he was not necessarily prepped to know that we were going to go all the way back to the beginning and go deep into things, and he literally turned around to look at his crew as if to say, what is this? But thankfully, he decided to roll with it a little longer, and I think came to realize that there were no ill intentions here. It was really just to kind of learn what made him the great artist that he is. There were some tough times in your childhood, and I was, you know, learning about your biological father and some time that you and your brother were away, and I just wonder, you know, do you think that... You're going to start off really deep. No, well, just that... (laughs) The the reason I ask, though, is, like, do you think that's where the interest in comedy comes from? Is that out of a desire to either make others or yourself laugh or happier or whatever? Oh, I don't think so. No? Yeah, yeah, I don't think it had anything to do with it. I know lots of times they'll be saying stuff like, uh, you know, pain, comedy comes out of pain, and I don't subscribe to that. I think that's, you know, this. I mean, some of the best comedians had dark stuff, but there are people that don't have dark stuff at all that are really funny. Jerry Seinfeld, you can't get brighter than that he's one of the funniest people there is you know so so i don't i don't think that that pain i don't know if that came out like like i was trying to fill some hole by being funny sure enough he began to open up and have fun with it and joke around and to be honest was a delight even staying afterwards to chat a little more and take a photo to promote the episode on twitter and all of that so 
again, I think preconceived notions being overturned is something that I really am particularly touched by. Number seven for me is Jennifer Lawrence, who really, I think at the time you could argue, was the biggest movie star on the planet and may well still be. And someone who, on the one hand, I figured would be a wonderful podcast guest because she is so off the cuff and loose and just a a fun person based on everything we've ever known about her. And I'd done some Q&As and things with her over the years in group settings. I'd actually interviewed her once back during the Winter's Bone era, but that was over the phone. So I don't think that it was a matter of any of that making a difference. But one thing that I think did help is that her best friend and now producing partner, Justine Polsky, is actually also a good friend of mine and a big supporter of the podcast. And so I think she had kind of given Jennifer a heads up that this was a podcast to take seriously and make the most of. And I think that Jennifer took that to heart and and really came and engaged totally and was open to an extent that few people allow themselves to be. As I mentioned, Jimmy Fallon and then also Tracy Morgan shed some tears during their episodes. So too did Aziz Ansari, Lady Gaga, and as we'll come to in a moment, Stephen Colbert. So did Jennifer. I asked her a little bit about celebrity, first the downsides of it, and then also the upsides of it, the things that allow her to do good for others. And I think it says a lot about her that the part that made her cry was not talking about some of the terrible things that have happened to her with her personal photos being hacked and spread on the internet and things like that, but rather when she first realized the power that she had to do good and help others as a celebrity. I read about something that happened during the making of the first Hunger Games, which was that you saw that, I guess it's like the Spider-Man line, with great power comes great responsibility. Here, I guess the first time that you realized the positive things that could come with this were, was there a -A Make-A-Wish visit to the set? Yeah, yeah, there was a -A Make-A-Wish visit. And I had up until this point only thought about myself. How is my life going to change when I become famous? I wonder how many clothes I'm going to get for free. And I met a girl who had been burned all over her body. She said, this won't still make me cry. And she said that when she read these books, she finally felt proud to be the girl on fire. Like she, she owned it and she was proud of it and she didn't feel embarrassed anymore and it changed the way that she looked at herself sorry and that was fuck sorry and that was the first time that I realized that it's so simple and it and it's something I love doing but it can actually help people important people you know when I go to um when I go to the hospital at Christmas to sign posters and and visit the the children who can't be home for Christmas it's like you know three hours out of my day that I can go and and it's I I don't know it's just such a gift that I get to do what I love and with it people who really really matter you can make them feel better Mm -hmm. you know you can sign something for them and make them feel better or say hello to them and make them feel better so that was the first time I realized that that's great why did you have to go and bring I'm that up? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. Again, she couldn't have been lovelier. Big hug at the end. Very appreciative, of, I think, of the opportunity to not talk about fluff, but to really go deep. Number six was a very different experience, and some people are going to wonder why I would even include this person on the list. 
But again, what I'm rating here are the most memorable episodes for me, and this one was certainly one of them. It's Harvey Weinstein. We had him come in during the 2015-2016 Oscar season. He's somebody that I dealt with quite a lot in the course of my work covering awards over the last decade or so. And he had agreed to come on, and I held him to it, even though his movies that season had not been nominated and the nominations had already come out. He came by. He did pull some shenanigans as far as committing to be here for, I think it was 45 minutes or an hour, and then saying that he actually had a little bit less time. So the pressure was on to make the most of it, but I also had done a lot of prep and was very familiar with his history in and impact on the business. And we got into a lot of things about his early years and about his childhood and his influences and his approach to choosing and working on movies. It was all very interesting. We've talked about the span of your time in the business. Many of the people who you interacted with, your friends, your competitors, some of these guys are gone now. The Anthony Minghella's, Sidney Pollock's, Bingham Ray's, list goes on. Why do you still work and not just work, but work very hard? And what do you have to prove at this point? Are you going to do this forever or is retirement something that crosses your mind? Since I'm not known as a reader, I'll <laughs> quote from Nikos Kanzakis' Zorba the Greek. <laughs> he goes into the marketplace, Zorba, with a young English engineer who's building a bridge across Crete. And he looks at this guy and he says, see that guy over there, boss? He's been selling almonds every day in the same market space year after year after year. He just says, this guy lives like he's never going to die. He says, me, boss, I live each day like it was my last. So live well. And it was a real time capsule, I think. You will never hear that sort of an all-encompassing interview with Harvey Weinstein ever again because his lawyers will never again allow him to do an interview in which anything can be asked of him. We talked about a lot of things. We obviously didn't know and therefore didn't ask about a number of things that have come to light in the years since that podcast. But I think going back and listening to it now, as I have done, looking for any clue or hint or reference to some of the darker stuff, I think you do hear certain things that take on a different meaning. It's a little haunting to hear this person talk about his life in a way, referencing a sort of future that would never happen for him. Obviously, his life and the industry will never be the same after what has come to the surface. Number five for me, this is a little bit more fun, was Snoop Dogg. Again, somebody who I had been aware of throughout my whole life and kind of got a kick out of, but always thought of as just sort of the comic relief of a situation. I knew he'd made an impact in music sort of before I'd come along. I knew some of his songs, but I didn't really know his backstory, and I didn't know how deep he would be able or willing to go talking about it, but I wanted to give it a try, seize that opportunity. I fought for that one. And in the end, it was a surprisingly honest conversation. And I think not just because we smoked weed together during the interview, which will open up anybody, but I think he was appreciative of the opportunity to be asked serious, meaningful questions and not just have things teed up for him to say shizzle or whatever people like to hear him do. We did that as well. There was plenty of time to talk about all of that stuff, but it was really a chance to learn about somebody and find out there's a lot more to him than one might have assumed. When did you first meet her? She had a show that she do, and um, I was a fan. I always loved Martha Stewart. I fuck with her. She was always hood to us. So I asked to be on the show, and she let me come on the show, and 
We cooked a little something. A little mashed potatoes, I think. Yeah, and I took her number. She took mine, and we just, and I would text her, and she, she would be tripping because she would ask somebody to try to translate what I was saying. Because <laughs> I wasn't texting her on no regular shot. I'd be like, what's happening, Martha? What it do? You know what I'm saying? What it is? You know what I'm talking about? And motherfucker be like, well, what he's trying to say is, how are you? <laughs> well, why does he say all that? That's how he talks. And then was the next time that you actually saw her at the 2015? No, I did two. I was on her show twice. You were on her show again. A Christmas special I did, too. Okay, so you've had those experiences. Then you both wind up roasting Justin, Justin Bieber. Bieber. and We sat side by side. And, yeah. and what I'm doing with you right now? Yeah. Yeah, I'm just casually smoking a blunt or two or three or four and and blowing smoke right in your motherfucking face so you got secondhand smoke, the best smoke I, I, in the world. I want firsthand smoke. Do you? Yeah, man. Thanks. Indulge. Thank well, that's you. what Martha didn't do. She didn't do firsthand. She did secondhand. It actually set up an interesting afternoon because after that podcast ended, we had to quickly rush across town to record our episode with Gal Gadot and Matt Whitehurst, again, our recorder and editor, was upstanding enough not to join Snoop and myself in partaking in Snoop's very strong product. So I was not driving. Matt was driving. We left that smoke-filled room in the dog pound, as it's known, where Snoop's recording area and hangout place is over in Englewood, and headed back to Beverly Hills to sit down with Gal Gadot. And when we got there, I think it sort of sunk in that all of our microphones and our sound blanket that keeps noise from being made on the table and ourselves, everything really smelled of weed. And we tried everything we could from trying to open windows to Febreze ourselves and our equipment and everything to deal with this situation before Gal Gadot showed up at our room. Alas, the clock ran out. Gal Gadot knocked. We opened the door. And I felt compelled to sort of say to her, Look, we've just come from doing a podcast with Snoop Dogg. As you can imagine, he was smoking a lot. I, I, of course, deflected any responsibility for this myself. And she looked at me and just broke into laughter and said, yeah, 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 that's what they all say. Let's order cookies from room service and had them sent up. So she was a great sport, and that was a great capper to a very strange day. Number four for me is Barbara Streisand, someone who I never thought I'd get the chance to interview at length because she really has so rarely done long interviews. She is someone who doesn't seem to like that process, and when she has done it, even in brief sit-downs, is generally known to be very controlling and guarded and not the easiest person to interview. So I figured it was worth taking a shot at asking her to do our podcast when I realized that she was in the running for an Emmy for her latest concert special, which was on Netflix. And to my surprise, she ended up agreeing to do it. And it was a whole back and forth about the amount of time that we would need and she was willing to give. But it all came together on the Warner Brothers lot where she was in the process of re-editing her 1976 version of A Star is Born ahead of its re-release on Netflix. And she agreed to take the time to do it. Just an hour of, I think, only two hours total that she had given Netflix to use as it felt best in terms of promoting that concert special. The rest ended up being divvied up between a bunch of phoners. So this was a really rare and special opportunity. And I prepared accordingly. I don't think I've ever prepared more for any episode. I had a folder that I think was probably three or four inches thick of material that I was reading on top of books and other things to make sure that, again, I made the most of this chance to 
to really pick the brain of a legend who hasn't done and isn't likely to do many more of these sorts of interviews. And I was also very worried going into that in a way that I not often am. I'm not intimidated by somebody's star power anymore. I've dealt with enough people. That doesn't really get to me. But what gets to me is the fear that something could prevent us from having a really quality conversation and therefore blowing our one shot with that person. And I knew that Shrysand is known to, on a dime, get bored or controlling or change the topic or insist on doing things like that. And I felt that I needed to be absolutely ready for everything so that we could kind of keep things on track and, and cover so much of an amazing life in, I think, 45 minutes is what we'd been promised. And we ended up getting even more because it did go very well. There was a moment or two in there where things nearly went off the rail. I think the biggest issue was at one point I mentioned the fact that she had played a number of characters in films that you might describe as ugly ducklings who then bloom into something other than that. And I think that's a term that she has maybe heard in other contexts over the course of her life and therefore feels a little bit uncomfortable with. And so in this case, it seems that she heard me sort of insinuating, which I absolutely did not, that she herself was an ugly duckling who had bloomed into other things. And so it took a little staring to get that back on track and kind of win her back over to the fact that I wasn't a, a jerk. And I think that actually did happen, and she was incredibly forthcoming. There were some things that were tough with that episode as well, where there were other people in the room from her assistant to multiple publicists to a friend who I guess goes with her to some places to answer questions if she happens to forget a person's name or something like that. And so occasionally she would turn away from the microphone to look at these people and particularly that friend. And I was just worried that that might derail things. But in fact, it really exceeded all of my hopes. True or false, you would act again, especially if you could, I heard if you could play Mama Rose and Gypsy, would that well, get I really, you back? I really wanted to play that part, I must say. That would have been my farewell on screen, mm -hmm. and it was a bookend to me to Funny Girl, written yeah. by Julie Stein, and I love Stephen Sondheim's mm -hmm. work. And I know that character because my mother was kind of like that. <laughs> and it's about the jealousy of mother and daughter. You said you that know? on like a Christmas or something, your mother had... That's where you realize, right? Yeah. Mom, just that God, you read a lot about well, me, didn't you? Well, you got to do my homework. Come on. Okay, okay. Number three is Stephen Colbert, somebody who I have loved for many years and had the chance to sit down with at the offices of The Late Show in New York, just ahead of an Emmys at which he would be the host and was also nominated with a chance to win just a year after he had not even been nominated and was almost being written off as a late-night host because of poor ratings, a lot had then changed because of political things in the country, and suddenly his type of intelligent humor was in demand again. And so this was a very exciting one to get to do with him. What a lot of people do not know is that Stephen Colbert's personal story, which is obviously something we were going to get into on this podcast and that I learned a lot about prepping for it, is not funny at all. He's had a terrible tragedy affect his family when he was very young and in a lot of ways it shaped his future. I don't want to ask you to talk any more than you want about what what happened when you were 10, but it just seems like it was clearly, as it would be for anyone, instrumental in shaping the person who you became. And the, it seems like also the interest in making people laugh, particularly your mother, Lorna, 
can I ask you just how you think as a person you were changed by that tragedy when you were 10? The scope of how it would change you or how someone is changed Mm -hmm. by a tragedy at a young age is so broad. I can give you some things that are different, Mm -hmm. but I don't really know how it changed me. I have this recurrent image in my mind sometimes when I'm driving down a highway, especially a lonely highway, someplace Mm -hmm. like in the high mountain west where it's just you, the road, the plains, and the sky. And when I look forward, I imagine that the blue sky in front of me is actually not blue sky. It's a mountain so big that the edges of the slopes as they come down to the horizon are beyond my peripheral vision on either side. And then I'm actually driving toward a mountain I can't see. And in my mind, what happened to my family when I was a child affected us to a degree that it's a mountain we can't see. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You can like approach it and yeah. see sort of part of the slopes. But I have said to myself more than once, gosh, I hope I live long enough to figure out what that did to me. And then just as quickly as it had all begun, it ended and he ran off to go prepare for that night's episode of the show. Number two for me is Jerry Seinfeld. I'd had a bad experience with him on a red carpet once before. It's not even worth really getting into, but he just was somebody who clearly wasn't someone who was that enthusiastic to deal with press of any sort and doesn't like going through the motions of having to do things to promote work. And, you know, that's understandable enough. He's been successful enough that it's probably annoying to have to do some of the things that everybody else has to do to raise awareness for his projects. But I nevertheless reached out to his team about having him come on to talk about comedians and cars getting coffee, which I knew was a great passion project for him and was in the running now for an Emmy and hoped that he would be willing to engage. And for whatever reason, he did agree to sit down for an hour. We met up at an apartment in New York that he sometimes uses for writing. I got there before he did and was there with his publicist and we chatted and we had even arranged to do a Facebook Live conversation after the podcast. So he knew coming in that he was going to be there for a little while and I think he just made a calculation, let's make the most of this as long as we have to be here, let's engage. I think he did appreciate that right off the bat it was pretty clear we were going to be talking about things that he isn't always asked about and that we would be getting deep and really teeing things up for him to share his incredible expertise and knowledge. And that is, to a remarkable extent, what he did. By all appearances, everything that you've said and done, you're a comedian who acts, not an actor who does comedy, right? Right. But if... I don't even know how anyone could make that confusion. The mistake. Yeah. But, well, no, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I wonder, though, if you were to get a call from somebody who you know, like a Steven Spielberg or somebody yeah. who said... We'd love for you to be in our film. That sounds like fun. You would do it? Uh, I might do it. I doubt it. It, it, it. A guy like that is going to be smart enough to know no one's putting me in Star Wars. Nobody wants a character in Star Wars that says, you know, all the backflipping doesn't really hurt the guy that you're fighting. We could just lose the backflipping and just get on with the laser fighting. You know, you don't want that. That would be my character. And nobody wants that in Star Wars. A guy who's logical. Guy on the side. Yeah. yeah. And like my kids, I watch a lot of Star Wars because yeah, yeah. of my kids. And I thought maybe if I was in Star Wars, maybe instead of Darth Sidious, I could be, are you serious? <laughs> that would be your guy. You want to attack an entire planet? <laughs> Seriously? 
He was incredibly candid and interesting and willing to share some of his tricks for doing what he does, including the secrets of success for creative people and things like that, which I had never heard him talk about before and which I know resonated a lot with our listeners, many of whom have said that that is one of their favorite episodes as well. But number one for me is, without a question, Oprah Winfrey. She is someone who I have admired and marveled at for as long as I can remember and who I kind of didn't even regard as a human being because she's almost like a a god amongst men, just someone who has lived such a remarkable life and overcome so much and inspired and helped so many that the idea that it was even possible to sit down with Oprah for this kind of an in-depth conversation lasting an hour or so was almost unfathomable to me. But then Oprah did something that she hadn't done in many years, which is return to acting in a TV movie for which she started to get very good awards buzz. And I thought, what the heck, let me put out the ask and contact her representative. And the worst thing that would happen was she would say that she was unavailable. But Pretty soon after I sent the request, I was sitting in New York covering the Tony season, and I got an email saying, Oprah is willing to do this if you can be in L.A. on whatever day it was a couple of days later, and I couldn't believe it. But I quickly booked a flight, and I told a lot of people around the time, there aren't that many people that I would be willing to get on a plane for, fly across the country, spend just an hour with them, and then head right back across the country. But that is exactly what I did for Oprah, as anyone I think would. And it was incredibly well worth it. It was an intimidating room to walk into, not because Oprah is one of the most famous and recognized people in the entire world, but because she's one of the great interviewers of our time. And so to then go in there with someone who knows all the tricks and techniques and secrets and methods of coaxing a great interview out of others and try to do that with her, that was intimidating. And, you know, we had variations of that on Our episodes with Dan Rather and Dick Cavett and James Lipton and Mark Maron, all of whom have greatly influenced me as interviewers as well. But Oprah was a different story, just intimidating, but also intimidating in the sense that she's the guest who probably least needed me or my podcast for anything in her life and could have phoned it in or been rude or dismissive, but who was actually not only totally present and engaged for the full hour, but also opened up about really deeply personal parts of her story that she had never really shared before, even in decades of talking about her life and lessons from it on television and in magazines and in other interviews. And so it was just a very special hour that I think sets the bar for us as far as how to come in prepared, move on the fly as circumstances dictate, and try to make the most of your time with your guest. Can I ask you? I you've you can spoken ask me about anything. Uh, well, thank you. This I mean, is great. I, we have an hour. I love it, and and you know, reading about your life, it's it. I think it just makes it all the more amazing what what you accomplish when people realize what those first few years were, you know, entailed. There's a reason that you were moving around and and things were chaotic a bit. So, me, and also it informs a lot of what's happened since, including I think Henrietta Lacks and and Deborah Lacks, this character who shared some similar experiences. So I just wonder to whatever extent you're comfortable. I mean, what was what were those early years like? Well, that's so nice of you to say whatever extent I was comfortable because I think people who watched the Oprah show over the years have heard me say just about everything. I don't have very many secrets. If I have them, I haven't discovered them yet. <laughs> and one of the reasons for that is that I learned early on in the process of interviewing other people that what really 
connects you to another human being is you're willing to open up and be vulnerable, as Brene Brown has written about in Daring Greatly, that vulnerability is really your greatest power. Mm-hmm. And before people researched it and studied it, I had come to know that naturally, that vulnerability is your greatest power. And I would say that that's been my greatest gift in connecting to the audience is just being open and willing to continually be myself. It is not lost on me what a rare privilege it is to get to spend an hour or so with these great artists of film, TV, and theater, or as has also been the case, music, or amazing people from walks of life totally unrelated to what I usually cover but who I happen to have an opportunity to speak with because of their association with something that was being promoted for an award. That includes people who are heroes to me and so many others, like Gloria Steinem, Dr. Jane Goodall, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, Dan Rather, Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal, and even Vice President Al Gore. Because it is such a privilege and responsibility to do these, I won't do them unless I have the time to do them right which means spending a bunch of hours locating and printing out and reading every other important interview with or profile of our guest, crafting questions in a way that conveys knowledge but also curiosity. You know, we always begin every episode, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? That's obviously something that we can Google easily enough, but I think that asking it subliminally conveys to our guests that we're going to go back to the beginning and we're going to go deep and we value what you have to say. We also insist on doing every interview in person because I think on top of all of the preparation, the importance of eye contact cannot be overstated. A guest can look you in the eyes and see whether or not you're engaged or interested or genuinely curious or if you're just looking ahead to the next questions. And if they see what they hope to see, it can motivate them to open up a lot more. I'm not someone who lives with the illusion that my guests are my friends. Very few of them are actually people who I know and socialize with outside of work. But I will say that when you spend an hour excavating someone's life and soul to the extent that we do on this podcast, they tend to remember it and you in the future, which has resulted in some very nice, well, acquaintanceships. And I hear from some of our past guests that they are now regular listeners themselves which is the greatest compliment they can offer. By the way, you're an incredible interviewer. Oh, my God. You are. Thank you're really you. good at this. Thank you. That's yeah, so and nice I said, of you. I've been, really, I've been interviewed by a lot of people, but you're very— uh, That's so nice of you. Thank you. It's a nice you. conversation to Thank have. Thank you very much. I want to close by thanking the people who I work with and whose contributions to this podcast are every bit as important as mine have been. Again, it started at the beginning with Janice Min and Matt Bellany, and I thank them for believing in the possibilities for this podcast— I want to thank our first recorder and editor, Dora Takash, who was terrific through dozens and dozens of our first episodes. Dennis Schweitzer, who has filled in for Dora and her successors over the years since. Ryan Gabus, who has handled a lot of our episodes in New York. And most importantly, Matt Whitehurst, who has been our principal recorder since we first tried him out as a freelancer on the James Corden episode and who had even been editing a little for us before that and who is now a full-time THR employee tasked with overseeing not just this podcast, but probably a lot more than he bargained for at the beginning. Ours is now but one of three podcasts that comprise the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, the others being It Happened in Hollywood, on which Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope take deep dives into major pop culture moments in Hollywood history, and Behind the Screen, featuring Carolyn Giardina's conversations with artists who work behind the scenes in the business. And stay tuned, because there are other podcasts coming soon. 
People like Dora and Dennis and especially Matt have had to put up with a lot of OCD type stuff from me over the years. There's a reason you don't hear us and ums in the final edits of our episodes. I think Dora had to cut something like 500 instances of like, you know what I mean, from the Harvey Weinstein episode. And Matt has encountered many other similar situations. But I think the thing that makes it worth the time and hard work for all of us is the knowledge that we have created something that people seem to really enjoy and learn from and feel inspired by. And to be honest, the knowledge that so many people are listening and the occasional positive feedback that we get via tweets or emails or comments on iTunes or whatever really means a lot to us and keeps us going. You don't get that same kind of a response when you write up an interview without the audio. There's something about being able to listen to a great conversation, which I think people are maybe more willing to do in New York and LA where we all have commutes and a lot of us are busy exercising and trying to make the most of every minute. This is the kind of content that people seem to enjoy. And we were just lucky enough to figure that out early on and have a lot of other people, publicists, talent, and others help us to make it possible. In my experience, every person is endlessly fascinating if you take the time to learn about them and ask them questions. But showbiz people are, of course, particularly fascinating to a lot of people. And so it has been and will continue to be our goal on this podcast to work with them to tell their stories in a special way. So again, thanks for your support through our first 250 episodes. Please subscribe and rate our podcast and tell others about it. And God willing, we'll make at least another 250, and you'll stick with us through them as well. And now for my interview with Spike Lee. Thank you so much for doing this, Spike. It's our 250th episode, and we wanted to make it special. So you are helping us to, to do that. I really appreciate it. So I guess to begin with, can you set the scene of where we are right now? We're at the world headquarters <laughs> of Fort Acres and a Mule, Fort Greene, and the People's Republic of Brooklyn, New York. That's right. And how long have you been in this space? It's over 20 years. This used to be a, a garage so now it's a museum. Yeah, it's amazing. We're surrounded by stuff from all of your movies and I think movies you love, right? Yeah, a lot of stuff is signed too. Yes. Like behind you is the French eight sheet for on the waterfront signed to me twice. I saw it twice. That's awesome. Yeah. And I see Main Streets and all kinds of stuff. So Yes. And then over there behind you is uh, the poster for Midnight Cowboy yes. signed by John Schlesinger. The only x-rated film the one best picture yes what is the slogan for this company by any means necessary you dig sure enough <laughs> mm. and then one other just setting it up kind of question why are your films called spike lee joints growing up a joint was just a term that was like meant to be something less that's good mm -hmm. you know fly mm -hmm. as you would say like that's the joint right that's the joint and that was what you called them from the very beginning from college yeah yeah, when I was at Morris College, Atlanta, Georgia. Yes, and I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you more about all that because we're gonna, if it's okay, build to the present. But mm -hmm. I guess starting at the very, very beginning, you were not born with the name Spike. Can you share how you got the name Spike? As they say, <laughs> my government name yeah. is Shelton Jackson Lee. <laughs> right. And uh, Shelton was my grandfather's last name, mm -hmm. and Jackson was my grandmother's last name. Mm -hmm. But my mother, the late Jacqueline Lee, mm -hmm. she gave me the nickname Spike because she said I was a tough baby, so it's, it's stuck <laughs> ever since. Where were you born and raised in? Atlanta, Georgia, March 20th, 
1957. And what did your folks do for a living? Well, my mother taught. My father is a great jazz musician, composer, who's done a lot of the scores for my film. Uh, he also went to Morehouse, mm -hmm. as did my grandfather. My mother and grandma went to Spelman. Mm -hmm. These are two predominantly African-American schools across the street from each other. Mm -hmm. So my father did the scores for all my student films. Then she's going to have it school days, do the right thing, and Mo Better Blues. Mm -hmm. After that, it's been Terrence Blanchard. Yeah. Yeah. Growing up, were movies a big part of life in the Lee household? No, because uh, my father hated movies. So I was, my mother was a cinephile, so I was my mother's movie date. I'm the oldest. Yes. But my father loved sports, so my love for sports came from my father. and love sports and music. Yeah. From my mother, too, but, and, and my mother was film. Your education beyond high school and your early career, I know, was made possible by your grandma. Can you explain how that came to be the case. Well, my grandmother was a teacher, and she commuted between Macon, Georgia, and Atlanta, Georgia. And at that time, in the state of Georgia, the school was segregated. So for 50 years that she taught, she never had one white student. A whole lot of white students missed on a great mm -hmm. teacher. Van Gogh was her favorite painter. And for 50 years, my grandmother, Zimmy Rita Shelton, mm -hmm. she, uh, saved the social security checks for her grandchildren's education. And since I was the eldest, I got first dips. <laughs> so through those social security checks, which acquired interest over 50 years, uh, she was able to help me get through Morehouse, mm -hmm. NYU grad film school, and also gave me the seed money for my thesis film, Joe's Bedside Barbershop, which won the Student Academy Award in 1982. In my class is Ernest Dickerson, who... Yes. Great DP, shot all my films. Yeah. And why you also Ernest shot in order. She's going to have it. School Days, Do the Right Thing, Motor Better Blues, and Malcolm X. After Malcolm X, he went on the direct Tupac and Juice. Mm -hmm. I mean, Ernest came in the... And why you grad film school to be a director, but he was so advanced as a cinematographer, he used that route to uh, be a cinematographer, get to be a director. His first film, in fact, he interviewed with, with John Sayles for Brother from Another Planet, and he showed Joe's Best Side Barbershop to get the job. And so it was really helpful that he had shot in a feature mm -hmm. before we did our first feature together. She's going to have it. Yeah. My grandma also gave me the seed money for She's Gotta Have It, the, yeah. the first film. Well, I guess the whole idea that you would even want to make a film really happens only in the summer of 77. But before that, something else happened. This is in 76, your second year at Morehouse. You were just 20. Very tragically, you had a, a great loss. And I, I wonder how that, if you can share what that was, but also how it may have shaped you moving forward? Because, again, you said your mother was the person who kind of led you to fall in love with movies. Yeah, man, it's, it's Crooklyn. People should really see the film Crooklyn, which is a semi-biographical yes. film, and that film, Alf, the great Alfie Woodard plays my mother. It started like this, though. My first two years at Morehouse, I was like a D-plus, C-minus student. It was because I wasn't smart. I just was not motivated. Mm -hmm. And before going, going back home to Brooklyn... For the summer of 77, my advisor told me I had to choose a major. And I said, why? 
And my wife said, because you're out of electives. <laughs> <laughs> they came back here to Brooklyn, and it was an infamous summer, 1977. There were no jobs. Before that, you could, I mean, as long as you had your work card, you'd get a job doing something for the summer. Mm -hmm. But there were no jobs. And I have a friend, her name is Vieta Johnson, mm -hmm. who I grew up with. She went to Stuyvesant High School, I mean, very smart, smart. I mean, she knew she wanted to be a doctor at an early age. Went to Princeton, Harvard Med School. I mean, she, she knew it right away. So anyway, one day, I wasn't doing anything, sitting in my stoop. Again, didn't have a job, and went over to her house, her apartment, and in the corner was a box, a Super 8. I said, what's in that box? He said, Super 8 camera. I said, what's in the other box? He said, it's a film. I said, you can have it. Just gave it to me. And you'd never prior to that even thought about making movies? No. So I wasn't thinking about making movies either. It was just something for me to do. Right. And as I said before, it's the infamous summer 1977. Why do they say that? Because it's one of the hottest summers of record in New York City. Consequently, you had the blackout. Mm -hmm. That was the first summer disco. Mm -hmm. The Yankees won the World Series. Mm -hmm. And then you had David Berkowitz. Right. Son of Sam. So I spent the whole summer shooting the block parties, shot a lot of footage during the, the blackout, uh, blacks and Puerto Ricans stealing shit, <laughs> color TVs, air conditioners. It was just, it was like, the phrase was Christmas in July. Right, right. And then I went back to school in the fall with all this footage and I had to choose a major, so I chose mass communications. But more often had that major, took that across the street at Clark College as a professor there. Still there today. His name was Dr. Herb Eichelberger, mm -hmm. who encouraged me to make a documentary out of the stuff. I got all this footage. I don't know what to do with it. He said, why don't you make a documentary out of it? So it's entitled Last Hustle in Brooklyn as a Hamas last tango in Paris. Right. <laughs> and Dr. Herb Eichelberger, he really, really took a keen interest in me. Mass versus film, radio, television, print journalism. And our film class only met three times a week. I think Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays. But he would come in on Tuesdays and Thursdays because he had the key to the, the lab. And he would come in, not even getting overtime, and just kept it open so I could work on the film. So I worked in all first semester. Second semester, I showed it, and people liked it. You showed it in class? Or? I showed it in class. Yeah. So that's when I said, this is what I want to do. Right. Well, when you graduated in 79, I wonder if you can talk about what you did between then and going off to NYU grad school. I read about a few weeks you spent in L.A. Eight weeks. Somehow, I applied and got into a Columbia Pictures internship. Mm -hmm. And every week, it put you with a different department. So it was really uh, eye-opening to be on a studio and see how this thing works. But I had been accepted to NYU for the fall. Having applied to all... Oh, yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So, <laughs> I also, thank you for reminding me. I also I applied to three schools, NYU, AFI, and USC. To get in USC and AFI, you had to get a a certain score on, on your SAT, which I did not get. Mm -hmm. And luckily, they had more forward thinking at people at NYU, talking about the film school. At right, least. right who, thank God, said that, you know, whether the people we accept you not, they accept it solely on your, your test scores. Right. 
and it's been proven those scores can be slanted. <laughs> One way, I don't want to get into that. <laughs> so I got to NYU. You started there just after the Coen brothers had graduated from the undergrad program, right? While Jim Jarmusch is there, part of the grad program, and in the same class as another Lee, no relation, Ang, right? No, so, Ernest Dickerson, Ang Lee, all in the same class. With you, amazing. And Jarmusch was, uh, I worked in the equipment room, so I checked equipment out at the gym. And then he made it while you guys were still in school, while the rest of you were still oh, there. Oh, yeah, he's, he's still our hero because we were too young to have been there. They were all Oliver Stone and, and Scorsese, you know, we were too young. To they had gone. To right, right. So we knew, I mean, we, we knew NYU, but there's somebody that we all saw in the hallway and stuff. So even today, he's our hero because he, he really, everything he did with Stranger Paradise, I did with She's Gonna Have It. You know, mm -hmm. the, the can, you know, all the, the festival circuit, you know, he, he set the, the roadmap. For indies in the 80s, for sure, yeah. Well, well definitely for his fellow NYU students who, who are in grades below him. Yeah. It seems like it's maybe in your DNA to question authority a little bit, and it sounds like even within your first year at NYU, you did that to the point where it almost got you booted. Can you share what you did that riled up some of your professors? NYU grad film is this three-year program, and back then they had a policy at the end of the first year, they were get rid of half of the class. They don't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. Under the Lee regime. <laughs> well, I had nothing to do with that, but I am, I mean, you want to talk about it, I am a, a tenure professor now at yes. the graduate film school, also a artistic director. Right. So very early on, first semester, our class was shown Birth of a Nation. I have seen clips, but I never saw the whole thing. And after the class, discussion was solely about all the innovations that the father, of, in quotations, of father of cinema had come up with. Mm -hmm. But as far as the social, political stuff aspect of the film, that was not rough at all. And Ernest and I, you know, we, we were having, as they say today, we were feeling a certain type of way. Well, you guys were two of only five people of color, I read, right? Yes. We were only two to, to finish all three years. Wow. So I was just incensed. In film school, you grade on your films. So the end of the semester, end of the year, the faculty sits in the theater. It was called the Bijou. The film school then, they had, the film school then was on East 7th Street. And the faculty sits in the Bijou and they grade your films. And my film was a film called The Answer. It's about a young African-American writer-director who's given a chance to direct a remake of Birth of a Nation. For a studio. For a studio. And he takes the job thinking that he's going to have control, which is not <laughs> the way studios work with the first-time right. director, especially African-American director. And we had a lot of clips from, uh, you know, some of the most demeaning clips from Birth of a Nation in the film. And the faculty, they voted me out. But they have fucked up, though. <laughs> to help supplement my tuition, I was a teaching assistant. Uh -huh. And I worked in the equipment room. And I was the hardest worker in the equipment room. So because of that work ethic, they had slipped up and made the mistake of giving me 
a TA ship for a second year before the evaluations. So you're already in. <laughs> but they had thrown me out, and right. somebody said, we can't kick him out. We gave him a TA ship for the second year already. Right, right. True story. Saved your ass, huh? <laughs> yeah. That's how I was able to stay mm -hmm. and finish my final two years in NYU grad film. And that third year is when you, I guess, completed your thesis film that you referenced earlier, which Joe's Bedside Barbershop. We cut, we cut heads. heads. Right. <laughs> Just to, again, kind of remind people about a barbershop that's actually a front for a numbers game. Mm -hmm. You were just 25 when you made that. I read $13,000 is all it cost because you were using all the equipment and student labor and everything. We had to get it done. Right. That's what it is. And get it done. And it winds up at Film Society of Lincoln Center's New Directors New Films Festival. That's a big deal. Then the Student Academy Award in 83 that you talked about. What was the biggest takeaway from completing that? It was uh, a struggle. But that was good, you know. It, you know, it's good to find out early that this shit is not easy. Mm -hmm. And everybody, Monty Ross helped, Ernest. You, know, you just gotta ang, poor ang, ang did sound. So we just had, to, you know, yeah, come together. Everybody is, uh, you know, you help each other on their films. And you said shot by Ernest. Ernest Dickerson. Scored by your dad. Yeah, my father's Billy did a score. So when you graduated. Having done that, when you graduated in 82, what happened between then and summer of 85 when you started on your first feature, She's Gotta Have It? I, I know you were taking the film around a little bit. I was just trying to get a job. Yeah. Uh, I had an agent. I couldn't even get an ABC after school special, you know, just. And then because, to be honest, I thought that with me, I mean, it's very naive. I thought that with me winning that Student Academy Award, that my phone be ringing off the hook. Why do you think it wasn't? Look, it doesn't matter now, but I, all I can say is that, you know, I didn't get any jobs. I didn't get any work. You and never moved so, to L.A. Was that, you think, no, a factor? No. I had classmates that were getting work. So. Yeah. I mean, the phone wasn't ringing, and then the uh, phone got cut off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like you just said, I'm not, I was not going to move up to L.A. Yep. At that time, no black filmmakers working his way up from the mailroom. That was not going to happen. So, again, looking at what Jim Jarmusch did, independent cinema. That was that would be the way. If I was going to make a studio film, it would have to be start out as independent filmmaker. So the first feature, She's Got to Have It, came out in 86, film about a young black woman's relationships with three different men. It was promoted as, quote, a seriously sexy comedy, close quote. 86-minute runtime, black and white except one color sequence. When they say Spike Lee, independent filmmaker, they may not realize what that actually means. In that case, can you talk about the schedule of the shooting and the, and how you came up with the money for it, which was only 175 grand? We shot in 12 days, two six-day weeks, July 1st, July 14th, 1985. And the money was done in stages. So the first amount was we got to shoot it. Mm-hmm. The second mount was raise money, get the film out the lab. Right. The third mount was have money to live on so I could edit the film. Right. So we could show it to potential investors who were Lawrence Fishburne and, and Nelson George, who was still collecting checks, you know, I mean, 30 years later on it. Yeah. So, and then go to a festival route. So the world premiere was at the San Francisco Film Festival. Mm -hmm. 
And from there, we went to Cannes, where we won the, the Prix de Genese. Director's Fortnite, right? It was, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, is it true it got to the point where you guys were collecting bottles and cans and stuff to, to redeem, to nickel, pay for the Nickel deposit. Yeah. yeah. Got us a couple rolls of film. Why did you act in your first 10 films, but never since? Well, it started, she's going to have it. We can afford to pay anybody else. So I did that. And then... Uh, but never really wanted to be an actor. No, no, no. It was just circumstance and uh, Mars Blackman, you know, still my relationship with Michael Jordan and Nike today because of that performance. And really because the film caught on, not just the, the performance. If nobody saw it, it wouldn't have mattered. But here mm. you guys started out, it was interesting, like the kind of rollout, because now I think it's maybe a little more common than it was then to start in just a few theaters or in your case, one theater. And you're literally standing there handing out pins and selling shirts and like just getting the buzz going to the point where it could then yeah, there expand. Was, there was one theater and every performance was packed. People were doing lines around the block. So it was a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it worked. Ends up making 8.5 million. How did your life change as a result of that? I mean, there had been obviously black filmmakers before from back to Oscar Michaud. Right. And I guess all the way through a few people who were on the scene a little bit before you, Melvin Van Peebles, Charles Burnett, Larry Clark. But these guys had not. Ozzie Davis. Ozzie Davis. Right. But they'd Michael not. Michael Schultz, who directed a lot of the hit films of Richard Pryor. What were you able to do that they had not been able to before? Was it just kind of... It's a progression, you know. I'm, yeah. on, I'm on their shoulders. Yeah. You know, you black filmmakers, you know, you know, taking up after me. So it's just it's a progression. Yeah. And then to come back to that relationship with Nike. So the movie does well. You're suddenly on the scene. How did you come to be involved with Nike? Well, two gentlemen who work at White & Kenny, which is Nike's advertising agency, Jim Davenport... And Jim Riswall. Jim Riswall. They called me up, said they saw the film, and they want to pair Mars Blackman with Michael Jordan. Said, but there's one catch. Michael just signed this deal, and he has director's approval, and he hasn't. He doesn't know you, know of you, <laughs> has not seen the film. Right. It was only two years ago at the NBA All-Star Game in Toronto where I finally got enough courage to ask Michael, Why'd you choose me? Because at that time, you had big time directors like Bob Giraldi. I mean, people, you got anybody. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know, big time Madison Avenue directors. And he chose me. I said, why? He said, motherfucker, because you're wearing my shoes. <laughs> <laughs> so the basketball love, though, preceded your success. You were into, I mean, because I, I was think going to Nick games way, way before. I mean, I was in junior high school. So the seats just got better. <laughs> well, not 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 right away. Right, it took a couple movies. <laughs> they moved me down every movie. Right. <laughs> All right. So the follow up to "She's Got to Have It" was "School Days," nineteen eighty eight, a musical, which kind of, in some ways, surprised people. You've always kind of kept people off balance. Uh, well, wait a minute. How can I only don't wonder how can they? I only done one film before that. Right. So but I how mean, was that a surprise? Like, okay. Well, it was not like that. It was very different. It was a. Yeah. Well, well I mean, I'm not going to try to re repeat myself. Sure. Especially because people, I had offers to do She's Gonna Have It too for, for the second film. Are you serious? Even yeah. back then, they were onto sequels, huh? So. Yeah, that's been around. Yeah. Well, with School Days, it's about these competing ideologies on the campus of an all black college. Missing college. Yes. What are the last words of that film? Wake up. 
And they're the first words to do the right thing also. Do you think that Those being words woke still? comes from that? The oh, idea? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No one was saying woke. That's some new shit. You're right. So, but I, I mean, would say wake up at 88. So that's what I'm saying. I, th- I feel like it's got to trace back to this. Who else was saying wake up in that context? Parents getting their kids out of bed. Other than that. It <laughs> 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 wasn't used in that context. I guess with School Days, though, you were a little frustrated by the lack of promotion of the film by Columbia. It was a sore spot because it was a great movie, but it didn't get seen as much as others, right? I don't think that uh, Columbia Pictures knew what they had. And then there was a, a regime change, so that's never a good thing no, for the films that have yet to come out when there's a regime change. Right. Just a year later, though, is when you put out what I think might be my favorite movie of all time. I have a, a frame. Of all time? Yep. Don't say that. I'm telling you, man. Don't say that. <laughs> I've watched, and I'm, that's not because I haven't seen old, you know, classic movies. I, I'm telling you. I, no, I, heard, I heard your favorite all-time film was Driving as a Daisy. <laughs> <laughs> that's bullshit. Don't, we're going to talk about that. But uh, come on, give me a little credit. Uh, so Hey, somebody voted for that film to win Best uh, Picture. I, I was in diapers, so it wasn't <laughs> me. But well, you're going to be like... Like Shaggy, wasn't me? No, it wasn't. <laughs> wasn't me. <laughs> I'm wondering if you've ever had this out with Morgan Freeman. That's what I want to know. But we, I'll, nah, we'll come. Nah, we've never, you know, that's never come up between us. Right. But Do the Right Thing, Hottest Day of the Summer on One Block in Brooklyn. What was the seed of the idea? And after writing the script in 87, how challenging was it to get a studio to actually make it? It wasn't challenging. It wasn't I mean, first at one studio. It wasn't Paramount going to do it at one point. Yeah, but they they wanted to do it, but the last minute, like a week before going to pre-production, they wanted a script change. They wanted Mookie and Sal to hug at the end of the movie, <laughs> and then play it on the boombox. What Sinatra or something? No, 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 no. It wouldn't be Frank Sinatra. Be uh, that Coke song. I like the body. (laughs) But anyway. Right. And I wasn't doing that. So I called my friend Sam Kitt, who's executive at uh, Universal. He got it that Friday. He got it to Sean Daniels, got it to Tom Pollock. And a couple days later, we were at Universal. You go to work. Tom Pollock says you could do it for 6.5. Not a penny more. Not a penny more. Make the film you want. So that means shoot it in Brooklyn, do some of the cool technical things that you like to do, right? So there were some of the looking at the camera, face-off, stuff like that. I guess the biggest thing here, maybe more than anything up to that point, is that you're working with this large ensemble of actors from the veterans like Ozzie Davis and Ruby D to the newcomers like Rosie Perez. And you've said... Rosie's first film. Rosie's first film. Also, uh, Martin Lawrence's first film. Yes. Late, great Robert Harris's first film, too. So we had a lot of firsts. Well, you said, quote, do the right thing was the first time I really felt comfortable working with actors. It took me three films to get me to that point. Close quote. Why was that? Well, in film school, you're really more proficient behind the camera. It was my experience. Mm-hmm. And also, you're not paying the actors. And the actors know that. So once they get two days in, then they know that you can't. What are you, you going to do? Yeah. You know, that they can't be replaced. So right. they just you know, act a fool. Right. But. Again, it's a learning process. And so uh, I was learning how to deal with actors the first two films. And so you have to find a language to communicate to actors. So I was better at that with Do the Right Thing than the previous two films she's going to have at school days. The subject matter was pretty 
prescient is in one way appropriate word, but it was not that this stuff hadn't been going on already. But with, for instance, Radio Rahim, the idea of a conflict like that between an unarmed black man and the cops who are reacting to perceived threat, it's almost exactly to a T what happened with Eric Garner. I know, but the NYPD who murdered Ray Rahim was based upon somebody else, Michael Stewart, who was a graffiti artist. Okay. He got strangled. A little guy like my size. He got strangled to death at the Union Square subway station for doing graffiti. So that was based upon somebody. Was that what made you want to make that movie? It wasn't that incident, but I knew I wanted to be at that time. New York City was racially charged under the leadership, the non-leadership of Ed Koch, right? And a lot of that stuff was between Italian Americans and African Americans. Had the Central Park Five just happened? I think. There's a whole lot of stuff going on in, uh, you know, at that time. And you felt that making a film about this could have what, what was the desired effect? Well, I wanted to, to put a light on, you know, what is happening. One very deliberate thing was that the, the primary was coming up in September. And did not want Ed Koch to... Happen again, yeah. How, and that's what, when David Dinkins... That was the beginning of Dinkins, yeah. yeah. And actually, I think in... The background of scenes in Do the Right Thing, is there there's some Dinkins signs, I think? No, it's Jesse Jackson. Jesse Jackson, that's he right. He was running for that's right. president. I'm just curious, over the years, what have your own interactions been with the NYPD? It's cordial. You know, it's all right. So this movie goes to Cannes and did not win the Palm even though it had gone over tremendously well there. I read that Sally Field, who was on the jury, told you that it was Vim Vender's fault, that he was, quote, hating on the movie. And, I mean, no, they weren't using the term hating. There was something else? There. Okay. Oh, but oh, it, was, oh. It, was, it was Sally Fields and the late, great Hector Babenko. That let you know how this went down. Yeah, they told me. And even today, Vim Vender says that, <laughs> still denies that the, the, the president of a jury has any... Pull, which is not, that is not, that's not true at all. I just want to make this clear. I never had any beef with Steven Soderbergh. Because his me, film, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, yeah, did get the problem. It was not, I mean, me and him have always been cool. Yeah. I really want to state that. Yeah, yeah. think that, that there was, a, there was no, never been any friction between us. Right. We're cool, still are cool. My thing was with Ben Bendis. I think, did you say you were, you'd be waiting for him with a bat some, in an alley or something? <laughs> A Louisville Slugger. Louisville Slugger. <laughs> I think he's still scared of you. But so, I mean, because the issue was that... You, no, the thing about it, here's yeah, the thing. Yeah. Again, I'm not trying to bring this stuff up, to which has happened in 89. Yeah. In fact, June 3rd, this coming June 3rd, is going to be the 30th anniversary of the yeah, right thing. Yeah, And people forget it opened the same day as Tim Burton's Batman. Oh, wow. It opened the same day. Wow. But when Ben Vendor was asked why the decision was made, he said because... Mookie's character was not heroic. Because he threw the trash can through the window, right? I don't know if he's saying that. He just was heroic. And, yeah. and I was like, James Spader's character was, right. again, not <laughs> hating on James Spader. Right. I'm like, that's not a standard for judging. Yeah. I mean, the guy, I mean, the, not James Spader, but his character, right. you know, was masturbating and, and you know, doing shit on with the video camera. Right. But that was just a lame yeah. excuse. He just said, look, I don't like the movie, you know? Right. Say, and then, which has been something that's been talked about for years, mm -hmm. you know, why did no African American or person of color has ever asked me why Mookie threw the garbage can through the window? Ever. Yeah. Ever. 
EVAH. No African American person of color has ever asked me why did Mookie throw the garbage can through the window of Sal's famous pizzeria? Well, so the, I've read a lot of other people's takes on this, and there are some people who say that he did it to defuse the situation. Wrong. Now, look, that might be their opinion. Yeah. But as the, the author, yeah. Mookie threw the garbage can through the window because he saw his best friend yeah. with his own eyes strangle to death in a chokehold. And he just broke. Also, he screams hate, too, mm-hmm. when he throws it through the... And that's, again, going back to the knuckle rings yeah. that you wore, which comes from... Uh, Night of the Hunter. Night of the Hunter. And that script written by James Agee, mm-hmm. which we have some of that the, mm-hmm. that speech, love-hate speech, mm-hmm. great performance by uh, Robert Mitchum, mm-hmm. directed by Charles Lott, only film he directed. Yes. And I saw that in film school. Did you? Okay. Well, meanwhile, aside from the insult of how the can jury processed the movie in your in your view it sounds like another thing that wasn't very helpful was that almost immediately you've got a lot of the press david denby joe klein people are saying watch out this movie's going to cause race riots if it gets in theaters i think that's where tom pollock needed bodyguards and other things because they said we're putting this out right well we got to go back a little bit to this day it was denby joe klein another guy Jack Kroll, I think. Is that his name? He used to write for Time Magazine. Mm-hmm. All of them said that, I think it was David Demi had the quote, like, please hope that this film doesn't open in your neighborhood. Oh, wow. People should go back and look. They're, they're, they're just purely racist. Yeah. The white folks go crazy at the scenes. The Schwarzenegger films are coming out at that time. I mean, it was total racist that black people didn't have the capabilities, the intellect, to discern the difference between what's on screen and like automatically this film will write black folks to go insane and and that became a big thing well you said quote some white moviegoers were scared to see it in theaters because they might be filled with crazy black people (laughs) close quote and actually i i don't know if this is true maybe you can clarify something but I know for a fact that it was right around that time, late 80s, that screeners first started going out to Academy members as VHSs originally. And one thing that I heard was that part of that was because even Academy members weren't so sure they wanted to go see this movie in a theater. Do you remember anything about that? No, not me. I just remember that it was really despicable. They would write those words that basically was saying, don't go to see this movie because black people are going crazy. And start riots. Mm-hmm. Which never and, and, and then blood will be in my hands. On your hands, yeah. Jack Kroll, I think it's K-R-O-L, K-R-O-L-L, David Denby, and Joel Klein. Mm-hmm. And so now comes to the hero of this, which is Tom Pollock. Mm-hmm. Tom Pollock, who was then president of Universal Pictures, was under tremendous pressure to not, at the least, don't release it in the summertime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Push the release back. Yeah. And it would have been very understandable if Mr. Pollock had done that because he had just gone through hell with Last Temptation of Christ. Mm-hmm. He had to have bodyguards. Mm-hmm. His family was affected. Mm-hmm. So he could easily say, Spike, I can't, man, it's just hurting my family, walk around in fear. I don't want to have bodyguards with me. I just went through this with Marty. I can't do this again. And it's back to back. But he didn't do that. He said Spike going to put the film out. 
So I always try to give love to Tom Pollard yeah, yeah. because he's an unsung hero. Do the right thing. Absolutely. It could have been very different if he would just, if you would have delayed the release or also not put it out. Because they was, again, you know, they were on his ass. Yeah. Industry-wide. Well, you know, to uh, do not release this film. One byproduct of the fact that they did release it is that Barack and Michelle Obama are together. No, well, that was their first date. Yeah, <laughs> so thank you for that. All right, so along eventually come the Oscar nominations. You were nominated for Best Original Screenplay. Danny Aiello got nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Beaten out by Denzel for Glory. Ultimately, right. But you were not nominated for Best Director. The film was not nominated for Best Picture. And the eventual winner, as we referred to earlier, was Driving Miss Daisy. Whoa, whoa, so, hold on. Yeah. Driving Miss Motherfucking Daisy. <laughs> <laughs> Now, just to just in fairness for to present all the facts, Bruce Beresford was not nominated for best director either. One of the few times the the picture winner, the director of that was not nominated. But who, who won for director? Director in '89 was what did Oliver Stone do that year? Yeah, born on the Fourth of July. Mm -hmm. But that still pisses you off. You told Charlie Rose in 2011, quote. Do the Right Thing was not even nominated. What film won Best Picture in 1989? Driving Miss Motherfucking Daisy. <laughs> <laughs> That's why Oscars don't matter, because 20 years later, who's watching Driving Miss Daisy? In 29 years later. Well, at that time, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, I'm saying today. Yeah, still. <laughs> like, update that statement. Right, right. Like, oh. <laughs> 2015, you, you said, quote, are they going to choose a film where you have a relatively passive black servant or are they going to choose a film with a menacing Radio Raheem? A lot of times people are going to vote for what they're comfortable with and anything that's threatening to them, they won't, close quote. At that time, you'd won a Student Academy Award, but this has seemed like the movie that would have been your first mainstream one. It bothered you, right? I mean, it bothered me when people bring it up, but uh, again, <laughs> you know, do the right thing is in the Library of Congress. Yes. You know, I'll show you my... my plaque upstairs yeah, i mean yeah. it's in the library of congress and people love that film and it's it's the good shit doesn't get old right and all nothing people sleep in that film we were there we had the crystal ball this 88 we were talking about global warming right we were talking about gentrification a whole lot of stuff and that film inspired so many other filmmakers who have talked about its impact i just want to give one example john singleton saw it the summer before senior year at USC and has said, quote, after the movie, I just went to my dorm feeling intimidated but excited, and I was like, how am I going to make it in this business? How am I going to have some type of voice? I rolled down to my neighborhood where I grew up, and it just came to me. I said, I got to do something for Black South Central L.A., close quote. So he began writing Boys in the Hood, for which he became at 24 the youngest filmmaker and the first black filmmaker ever nominated for Best Director at the Oscars. You, I know, had a similar impact on the other black filmmakers who have been nominated for that award, Lee Daniels, Steve McQueen, Barry Jenkins, Jordan Peele, they've all talked about it. So it's but not just, only black directors. Of course not, yeah, of course not. But right. I just want to say that yeah, there, yeah. there have been now this kind new, of new generation. outrageously, though, not not yet Spike Lee, but this season maybe that'll that'll change. For, oh, you mean as a nominee for, for Best Director? Not even a DGA also. Well, all right, so people should note that. So I guess all of this, along with other things that have happened over the years, such as the what's become known as Oscar So White, it's all left you feeling pretty conflicted about the Academy, right? Well, Cheryl Isaacs, the former president of uh, yep. the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, she did a great job. Behind the hashtag Oscar White, she really took that to the board members and said, look, we got we to gotta open this shit up. 
make it diverse. I know for sure if that had not been done, opening up the voting members, the black people who've won Oscars since then would not, the votes not been there for them. So you think like Moonlight wouldn't have happened? Just to state the facts, the year before the first of the two years of Oscar So White was an Oscar ceremony that you attended because you felt it was important to be there the night that 12 Years a Slave became the first film directed by a black filmmaker to win Best Picture. I want to be there for him. So the dilemma, the internal debate in a lot of Hollywood is if they weren't racist that year, then the next year when there weren't people of color, did they... Yeah, be, but here's the thing, though. Black yeah. people have won Oscars. So yes. it's, it's not like it's been nominees. It's not right. like it's never happened. Right. But every 10 years, it seems like there's a slew of black films and my phone's ringing off the hook because people want me to comment on this... Right. The, the new renaissance of black cinema. Right. And that's been the problem. It's like, it's every 10 years. Something happens in the 10th year, and in the next nine years, there's a famine. So is this one of those years we got Black Panther, Black Klansman, if Beale Street could talk, Green Buck, you're not going to put that in there with those. I'm looking at your I see your face. All right. Okay. All right. That's well, No, but you're saying, let's say, oh, we were talking about films directed by. Oh, okay. Directed by. Right. Yeah, yeah, okay. Not why. about black related subject matter. Okay. Well, I guess another one we may not, you what? may not want to include in there. What's that? Sorry to bother you. <laughs> no comment. No comment. All right. So <laughs> moving on to the next Spike Lee joint here that we got to talk about. Mo Better Blues, tribute to your father and to other black jazz artists who had not been portrayed the way you felt they should have been up to that point. Mm -hmm. What did you feel needed to be corrected? Well, I just felt that in some of the films previously, I just didn't see the humanity. I mean, they're, they're tragic figures, you know, they're drug you know, they're addicts and stuff like that. And not to say it didn't happen, but growing up in the jazz household, I mean, it's... I just want to do a film to, to see the life, the joy that these great musicians have for the music. That was Mo' Better Blues. And had a budget of 9.9, .9, I think, gross 48. Jazz artists played by Wesley Snipes and Denzel. First time with Denzel of four, I think, so far. How did you guys first connect? Do you live in New York? We just knew each other. But I like to add that when Denzel is playing the trumpet, that's Terrence Blanchard. Okay. And when Wesley Snipe is playing the sax, that's Branford Marsalis. Got it, got it. Who started out playing in my father's score. So the Branford and Terrence. Yeah. Branford, in fact, is featured on the score for Do the Right Thing. Got it. Well, on that one, Mo Better Blues, you and Dickerson patented what is now known as the Spike Lee signature shot, the double dolly that makes it look like someone's floating when they're walking. I guess by putting both the camera and the actor on dollies. How did that become the Spike Lee shot? Well, I like to state, first of all, I did not invent that shot. It was become my signature shot. And at that time, Ernest and I still weren't too many years out of film school. So we're just doing shit, film school stuff. Right. But then Ernest and I came to the decision that we just can't be sticking this shot anywhere. It has to really, if, it, if it's not going to be help the story move forward, then we're not going to use it. Right. An example is that the first time we used that in that way was in Malcolm X. Doing the research for the film, I became very close to the late, great Dr. Betty Shabazz, Malcolm's widow. And she confided to me that she felt that Malcolm knew he was going to be assassinated that day as he came to Audubon Ballroom in Harlem and that he wanted to be a martyr. And so once Dr. Jabaz told me that, told that to Ernest, we said, where, with that knowledge, what she just told us, said, yeah. we got to find a place for this. So 
it made sense. Yeah. Let's put that double dolly shot right before he enters to give his, his last speech at all Audubon Ball. Definitely. I want to see if we can put to bed once and for all something that you started to be asked about, I guess, starting with Mo Better Blues and people have brought it up with other things over the years. And I think I get, you have a dry sense of humor. I think I totally get it. I am Jewish. I've never been really bothered by anything you've ever said. Mo and Josh Flappers didn't bother you? The character. Oh, the character. that's right. The, by, by Nick well, Turtle and Josh. So that's where I want to just go with this because you had some people that said, hey, you're making the two club owners in this film Jewish, even though they're played by the Turturros, who I don't think are. And so there were people that were saying that's anti-Semitic. Then they got angry when Four Little Girls was nominated for the Oscar. And I think in the commentary, you said, what chance does my film have when it's up against the Holocaust documentary, which is also... Well, well here's the thing, though. Yeah. You're leaving something out. Yeah. A film about the Holocaust went like nine times in a row. That's No, I, I don't dispute <laughs> that. There were a lot of Holocaust... So, But, I mean, the notion that Spike Lee has a problem with Jews. Look. Black people have a problem with Spike Lee. So what's the problem? <laughs> <laughs> let's let's go through the history. Right. She's having a misogynist. Right. School days, black folks mad because I'm airing dirty laundry. Do the right thing. The film's gonna cause riots all across America. Black folks gonna run amok. <laughs> More better blues. I'm anti-Semitic. Jungle fever. I'm anti-Italian American. I have a death threat. I'm on the call of the Daily News. Cops guard Spike Lee. We're shooting Bensonhurst. We can leave it there. I don't yeah. want to go any further. No, so it's just, just so. But here's the thing, though. In the history of the music business, mm -hmm. there's never been any Jewish managers or whatever you want to call it that exploited black artists who had record labels that will give people like Chuck Berry a Cadillac for their royalties. I mean, this is documented. Well, and, and just I mean, when you show a character, and, and it's nobody saying this is every club owner or just the same way that nobody's saying every a pizzeria owner is a racist or every, you know, whatever. So I, but I just wanted to address that because it, I'm sure I know it's probably not in the same way. Nobody who isn't racist likes being called a racist. Nobody I'm sure likes being called anti-Semitic. So look, here's here. You're leaving something out. Yeah. My lawyer, the late great, he's a lot of late greats. Mm -hmm. His name is Arthur Klein, mm -hmm. Jewish. Mm -hmm. He was a top entertainment lawyer. Pacino, Lament, he was my lawyer also. Right. When this whole thing came out, being anti-Semitic, he told me, and this is God's honest truth to Spike, if you don't write an op-ed piece for New York Times saying you're anti-Semitic, you will never work in Hollywood again. Saying you're not anti-Semitic. Yes, and do your research. There's an op-ed piece that had the right saying, I am not anti-Semitic. And my Jewish lawyer told me, if you don't write this, you will never work again in Hollywood. Well, but even that could be no, interpreted, no, no. you know. <laughs> well, I'm telling you what my lawyer yeah, no, told of me. Course, also, of course. How, yeah. how, how am I going to get this up in the New York Times? Said, don't worry about it. He'll you get write it. it, Right. I'll get it in there. Right. It's ancient I, I didn't history. want to write that. Yeah, but he says, Spike, if you if they're gonna be repercussive, you don't write this. Well, but I mean, I would think more than anything, I don't think you probably like being called anti-Semitic. But here's the thing, though: if you look at the history of cinema, yeah, the way black people mm -hmm. have been dehumanized, 
Well, that's not all Jews that are. What? I didn't say nothing about. Yeah. I didn't say. I need. I didn't say anybody. I, I said in the history of cinema. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did not say Jewish. No, so don't put words. I, in no, my no, mouth. no, no, no. I'm just no, trying no, to understand. No, 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 no. Don't put words in my mouth. Right, right, right. Do not put words in my mouth. Right. I said was in the history of cinema. Right. Of all the the humanized images of black folks, I'm picked out for betrayal of two club owners who own this club. And if you look at the history of the music industry, I don't think that was in inaccurate. Well, let's go on to the next one. Let's go. Ahead. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next one. Jungle Fever. Oh, that's another one. Another well, because interracial, Jungle right? Jungle yep. Fever, I'm against interracial marriage. I mean, every film... There's something. Well, Jungle Fever, so, though. So it's not like new. It's, right. There's always going to be something. Every film, because I think a lot has to do with the subject matter. The subject matter that's in the films and, you know, how we deal with some issues that people... Yeah, they're sensitive know, they're, issues. They're sensitive issues and, and make people uncomfortable. Jungle Fever, this was the first one that was scored by Terrence Blanchard, who had been working on your films before that, but not as the primary composer and now has done it ever since. What makes him so good? Terrence, I mean, he's a great musician, first of all, a great jazz musician. He's a trumpeter, composer, and his knowledge of music is so vast that whatever the film needs, you know, he could, he could deliver. Right. No, it's amazing. And it's dozens of movies you guys have done, I think, together. But yeah. year after Jungle Fever, just to, it's amazing. The tut, 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 these are coming out right after each other. Malcolm X second movie with Denzel. But in the run-up to that, I just wonder if we can set the scene because in March 91 is when Rodney King happened. April and May 92 is the L.A. riots. How did those events shape your your thinking in the run-up to getting involved with Malcolm X? That was worked out where it's got to be Norman Jewison directing it and you felt it they, should be a black film. They were ahead of me. Denzel was attached to it. Denzel, okay. It did, the only effect it had was I just wanted to put that the beating of Rodney King during the opening credit sequence. In a similar way to having Charlottesville at the end of Black Klansman, just speaking to the present. Yeah, well, that comes from my, you know, my documentary mind. Yeah. I'm not saying you're wrong, but I'm asking you, why was it not appropriate for Norman Jewison to direct Malcolm X? I would not use the word appropriate. Norman Jewison has said earlier that, you know, there was a black director who could do it, you know, mm -hmm. I would step aside, so... Mm -hmm. Marvin Worth, the producer of the film, arranged a meeting between Norman and I, and we discussed it, and Norman Jewison was very gracious to step aside because he did not have to do that. Right. It, was his, it was his film right. with Denzel. He did not have to do that. You know, and I, I thank him for that because it was, it was his film. When you got involved at, I think, $33 million, it was your biggest budget movie up to that point, working again with Denzel. Was that enough? It wasn't still, wasn't, well, that's what we're coming to here, but Denzel, by this point, is now an Oscar winner. You're, part of this is being shot in Africa. You're trying to tell the story of the guy who I think you've said is maybe your greatest hero, lived a huge life, and then you're told this better not go over three hours, right? Even though there's so much life to address. What were the financial implications of you wanting to keep it over three hours? Well, from a studio standpoint... A three-hour film gives you one less screening at the movie theater. So one less screening means that that's less money you're going to make. Right. 
we felt that we needed three hours. It's based upon, I mean, we want this to be the epic, like the epic films of David Lean. Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, Bridge and River Kwai. Epics. And epics, you, you can't do an epic in two hours. Malcolm led so many different lives, and we felt that we needed that time to show his evolution. Mm -hmm. And Warner Brothers, they didn't want to do that. So, Was this your first time really, I guess, with a big budget working for a studio? I mean, we've done studio films before, but yeah. I mean, now it's the biggest budget we've yeah. had. But at the same time, it really was enough. Yeah. So I refused to cut the film, and the studio let the Bond company take over the movie. And so all the people that were working on post were, got registered letters saying, you're fired. Mm -hmm. Had to make some phone calls, and we got the money to continue editing. But that, at that point, there was no interaction between myself and studio because as far as legally... The studio did not own the film anymore. It's is under the the bond company owned it. Mm -hmm. And so calling a list of prominent African Americans, they wrote a check. Janet Jackson, and, Oprah Winfrey, Bill Cosby, Prince, Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Tracy Chapman. You got a all star team. Yeah, and and a, a woman named who just recently died. I didn't even know she died. Her name is Peggy Cooper Kafritz. Uh-huh. And on Malcolm's birthday, we had a press conference at Schomburg Library in Harlem. We made this announcement that these prominent African Americans had written a check so we could tee the film. And the next day, miraculously, back to work. Warner Brothers started took the film back from the Bond Company and started to, you know, finance the post production to a finish. So that film did very well. Like all the others, started up a little controversy, but that's good. Just to very quickly hit on a few of the others that are some of the most important ones. Crooklyn 94, was that your most autobiographical? The Carmichael's in that movie, like the Lee's family in Brooklyn. Semi-autobiographical. Semi-autobiographical. There's no, I mean, that's, I've said that from the beginning. That was my family in the movie. Four uh, boys and a girl, yeah. Yes, but uh, my sister, Joie, my brother Sankey, yeah. they had written that script, and their title is called Hot Peace and Butter, which is a name of a mm -hmm. street game you play here in New York City. Mm -hmm. And then I came in and rewrote it. And so that's, that's not rewrote, but it's added stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, that's Crooklyn. Clockers 95, sort of the wire before the wire in a sense. I guess originally it was going to be Scorsese and De Niro. So how did it become Lee? Uh, well, and Scorsese had Universal buy the novel from Richard Price Clockers for a big amount of money for Robert De Niro to star in. And something happened, and he wanted to do Casino instead. So Mario didn't want to leave... Universal holding the bag. So he called me up and said, look, I'll executive produce, and uh, I want to do this film. And then they went off and did Casino that year, right. I guess. Mm -hmm. 97, first time outside of college that you did a documentary for Little Girls, which we mentioned earlier, you ended up getting an Oscar nomination for, about the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in Birmingham, 1963, that killed four little girls. What made you decide to do that for the first time? And we should just, before you answer, I should just note, You've done a lot of them since then. Original Kings of Comedy in 2000, When the Levees Broke, which was so great in 2006. Two Michael Jackson ones, Bad 25 and Michael Jackson's Journey from Motown to Off the Wall, 2012 and 2016. But this was your first. You interviewed George Wallace. You got these guys finally brought to justice. I mean, what was the driving reason for that? 
my family's from, on my, on my father's side, my family's from Alabama. And Snow, they're from Snow, Alabama, which is not that far from Montgomery. Mm -hmm. So I've always been interested in that. And went to HBO and said, let's do it. Sheila Evans there, yeah. Yeah, Sheila Evans, the great. Yeah. Not late. No, 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 no. <laughs> Although Still around. Late of HBO, though, yes. But. Yeah, she's re retired. Yes. But, uh, she's All the documentaries I did at HBO were for her. Yeah, amazing. And, and the president, Richard Plepler. Yes. So I wanted to tell this story and speak to the parents, the friends, and say what with the question, well, who, who would these young black girls become? Who would they become if they been, hadn't been given the chance to live? Now, Jager Hoover was not a friend of black folks. He was not a friend of the civil rights movement. The FBI knew that week who did the bombings. The guy's nickname was Dynamite Bob. His nickname is Dynamite Bob. Jesus. Birmingham had that nickname in Birmingham. Uh-huh. And black homes were being bombed. So those murderers did not go to jail. Mm-hmm. Four girls opened up the film form, I think like a two-week run. And before I got a call from FBI, they, they wanted to see the film. And the day after the film opened, the FBI pressed charges against those guys. Amazing. That's one of the most things I'm proud of, that, yeah, that, that film. But They died in prison, right? Yeah. Now, what year was that? 97. 97. Okay. And then 1963. Mm-hmm. Four. 34 years later. So those motherfuckers, mm -hmm. those clan motherfuckers, mm -hmm. murderers, terrorists, mm -hmm. walked free. All those years. But 34 years. Yep. And the day after this film opened. They got him. They got him. But the crime is that they knew who these motherfuckers were the week of the bombing. The guy's name was nickname was Dynamite Bob. Yeah, but I hate to say it, but like we got a woman in Mississippi right now who's going around saying she'd love to be at a public hanging and on and on and on. And she's about to get elected to the U.S. Senate in Mississippi. People know this. There's still parts of this country, right? Yeah, but this was this this was Alabama. Well, <laughs> those are those are two states I don't imagine you're vacationing in anytime soon. Well, but. in fact, the character the Alec Baldwin plays and Black yes. Lamb is based upon that governor of Mississippi. Well, governor of Mississippi, because I want to ask you about George Wallace. Oh. To look George Wallace in the eyes, the man who was the architect of all the bullshit that your sure. race has had to deal with for your lifetime and well before. Here's the thing, though. I was shocked when he agreed to do yeah. the interview, but then I understood he was not long for this world. Right. And so what he was trying to do was revise his narrative. Right. Revise his history of hate because he knew he's going to see his maker. Did you want to expedite that process when you were with him? No, I mean, it was, it was really pitiful. I mean, yeah. I'm not going to say I felt sorry for him, but he was like a shell of the person. Mm -hmm. Who I felt sorry for was his black male nurse who uh, didn't want to be in it. Jesus. <laughs> and we would die laughing because <laughs> it was like Spike... He gave me a look like, why you got me up in this shit? <laughs> <laughs> All right. And, and just, I mean, segregation now, segregation, I mean, who stood in the door of the University of Alabama, mm -hmm. 
So Vivian Malone would not attend. Yeah. I mean, it was a surreal moment interviewing George Wallace. Mm -hmm. All right. I'm going to go as quick as I can to get to the present, but just how can I overlook, for instance, he got game, your third with Denzel, playing the felon, let out of prison for a week by the governor to try to convince his son, top basketball player, UConn's own Ray Allen, I'm Connecticut guy, to go to the governor's alma mater. Your first screenplay since Jungle Fever seven years earlier, first original screenplay. Why mm -hmm. tell that one? I'm a basketball fan. Right. And people always say, well, you can make a film about basketball. So but I know what the story was. That's why I had that one done prior. Right. But it came to me, and, uh, you know, people love that film. Absolutely. Summer of Sam in 99, a film about the summer you became Spike no, Lee, the filmmaker. Very ironic. And in this case, not actually really, even though it's called Summer of Sam, it's not even really about the killings. Well, it's the backdrop. Yeah. That was a crazy summer. Yeah. <laughs> that summer was insane. So here's how Summer of Sam happened. Yeah. Victor Caliccio and Michael Imperioli mm -hmm. gave me that script while I was working on Clockers. Imperioli had been in Malcolm X. Yeah. Right. And also Imperioli from uh, yeah, Sopranos, Sopranos later on. Yeah. So their script was called Anarchy in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. And I liked it a lot. So I said, I'm going to try to do it. And so I rewrote it. Yeah. Not rewrote it, but just added stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yankees. And Yankees, stuff. all that stuff. Because it, I just remember that summer so memorable. But for them, their viewpoint was this Italian-American neighborhood, you know, Arthur Avenue. And, and this story actually happened, you know, where this guy was accused of being from the sand. They beat, and he was, as I might say, he was weird. Right. And so that was reason enough right. to, to, to beat his ass. Right. And it's really about, you know, vigilante mob, you know, it's horrible where vigilante mob, you know, they got to have a scapegoat, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times people get strung up too. Well, yeah, many. And many. Oxbo incident. Absolutely. Yeah. Love really? it. Henry Fonda. Bamboozled 2000 black TV producer, Damon Wayans, hoping to get fired from the job he hates, puts on a Metral show, but it becomes a hit. Sort of the producer's model. Definitely, that's where it came from. And a musical in a sense, a backstage musical shot on digital for the first time. Mm -hmm. Why that? Ellen Curris was a DP. We wanted, and most TV shows were, were at that time were shot, you know, with digital. So that was our decision. 25th hour, drug dealer on his last day of freedom before beginning prison sentence. First post 9-11 Spike Lee film made 2002. Uh, it was the first film deal with 9-11. Right. Period. And so you felt that you wanted to... Well, now it was written by the great, not late, yeah. <laughs> David Benioff of... Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Future Game of Thrones. Right. And the novel was written before 9-11. So the film, the idea was to preserve what? I wanted to make this film take post-11 and see how New York City was dealing with 9-11. Got it. In 2006, you had your most commercially successful movie ever with Inside Man, back with Denzel for the fourth most recent time. Kind of an homage in some ways to... Dog Day Afternoon, which I know is one of your, your faves. Oh, yeah, that's that's no secret. We were watching that film several times, you know, in, in pre-production. And I just want to mention for listeners, because I thought that I got such a kick out of this, if you pay close enough attention, the same actor who delivers the pizza in Inside Man is the guy who delivered it in Dog Day Afternoon, except this time it's got Sal's <laughs> on the box, which I love. Right, and I always forget her name, but one of the hostages. Yeah. 
is a hostage. Hostage from that? Yeah. Oh, my the God. The one that Clive Owens says, take your clothes off. Ugh. <laughs> well, she was a hostage in uh, Doug Afternoon also. And you've done other winks like that, just if people want to go back and look again. Bugging out from Do the Right Thing is in Jungle Fever as a homeless guy. Mm -hmm. The cops who killed Radio Rahim and Do the Right Thing arrest Wesley Snipes in Jungle Fever. Right. I'm sure there are others that I'm not even aware of. But that's just kind of your wink to your loyal audience? Yeah, it's a wink. You know, connect the world, the, the, the universe. Right. <laughs> well, so coming off of Inside Man, though, with that big of a commercial success, did you figure that the next movie you can kind of have a little more freedom to make it about what you want, to get the money you want to do it? Like I've always had the freedom to do what I want. Whether I got the financing, that'd be another case, but I, I'm going to make the film I want to make. Because my sense was you thought now's the time when they're going to give me a little bit more financing to do one of these movies I really have always wanted to do, Joe Lewis, Jackie Robinson, whatever, and it just didn't happen, right? No, that's, that's not the way it worked. Creative differences uh Jackie Robinson, I wanted to tell his whole life, you know, powers of be, just wanted to pick one year, 47. That's not the story I want to take because he didn't just show up in 47, you know. He was, his grandparents were slaves. Right. James Brown, you know, that different viewpoint. You know, this it's all about how you want to tell that story, and I'm not going to do something that, you know, I don't think that that's best for me. Right. Joe Lewis was going to be with the Bud Schilberg script? Yeah, the late... Great. Yes. But sure, we were, we, we were very good friends. Yeah. And we co-wrote a script called Save Us, Joe Lewis, mm -hmm. about the friendship of Hayway Champions, Max Schmeller, mm -hmm. and Joe Lewis. And you still want to do that? Oh, yeah. I made a promise to Bud I was going to do it. The one that did happen after Inside Man was Miracle at St. Anna, 2008, mm -hmm. following four members of the U.S. Army segregated 92nd Division, the Buffalo Soldiers, fighting the Nazis in Italy at the end of World War II. First film and ever. The, and the fascists. And the fascists. Right. First film that was made about them, really. I read that one of the people who was kind of helpful in terms of providing viewing ideas of things to see before that was one of your favorite filmmakers and fellow New Yorkers, Martin Scorsese. I guess that he kind of opened up his library to you of older movies that might be worth looking at before that. Yeah, the Italian neorealism films. Yeah, and that um, was helpful. Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, because those films were shot shortly after the yeah, war. Yeah, you yeah. Know, and you could see the rubble in the, in the streets. I guess, you know, one thing that I always thought was kind of interesting, that movie, Miracle at St. Anna, came out September 26, 2008. Just over a month later, November 4, 2008, Barack Obama becomes the first black person ever elected president. I guess just the contrast of... The history and then that moment. How in I some never, I never connected those two. No, never. Not my mind. Okay, I was there. In, I was gonna just say Grand Park, though. Right. So, what did that night mean to you? This is the you. I never thought it would happen. Right. You know, ever, it happened. And this guy in the White House has really, you know, got a lot of the stuff he got done. You know, got rid of. Well, so that's that's I guess when Obama gets elected, did you believe we'd turned a corner? And then no. What, you didn't. I did not drink the post-racial Kool-Aid. Kool-Aid. Right. Wasn't doing it. And so then when Trump comes along, the person more than any other prominent person who tried to delegitimize that first black president, and he gets elected. What did that so, tell you? I knew about way before when he took out a full-page ad. Central Park. A million-dollar reward for clues leading to 
conviction or whatever. Full page ad, New York Times. Right. And this is a guy who doesn't spend money on anything else stuff anybody. So he really had to well, feel passionate. He might have got someone else to pay for that. That's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Never he, your own money. No. <laughs> Definitely with him. The Sweet Blood of Jesus, 2014, and then Chirac, 2015. First one, people see Spike Lee's raising money for a movie on Kickstarter. They thought you'd fallen upon hard times. Like, what was the reason to go to Kickstarter? Here's the thing. I've always been an independent filmmaker. Yeah. I mean, I've never, you know, I go back and forth where the money is. And with the film, I wanted to make this film, and studios did not want to make it. So that's not a, because studios don't want to make it is not a reason not to do it. But... I would like to say this also. I was doing Kickstarter. Effectively. She got out of Technology. I mean, I was call, making phone calls. Right. The bottles and cans. <laughs> writing letters, right. postcards. Right. <laughs> so the principles of Kickstarter, I was doing in 85. They owe you royalties. <laughs> so is, is the technology makes it. Right. Put you in touch with your fans, so right. That, I mean, I had no problems doing that. No, 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 <laughs> and it got it got the job yeah, done. Got the film made. All right, Black Klansman, true story of Ron Stallworth, black cop who in 1978 infiltrated the KKK. Just to again set the scene here, the showdown between the racists and the anti-racists in Charlottesville took the place. Right, the right to unite. Yeah, March, summer of 2017. That resulted in the death of Heather Heyer on August 12, 2017. How did that whole episode impact you, and were you already at work on Black Klansman? We were in pre-production. I was in Marlowe's Vineyard, saw it on CNN, and I knew that this had to be the ending. Mm -hmm. So after we finished shooting, I got Susan Bro's number. She's the mother of Heather, mm -hmm. and she gave me blessings to include her daughter, who was murdered mm -hmm. in a homegrown red, wine, and blue, apple pie, cherry pie act of American terrorism. Mm -hmm. And that was a terrorist act. Yep. But there were I good do, people on both I, sides, Spike. Yeah. I do hope that people start to understand this false narrative that terrorism is only by ISIS or some Muslims. Yeah. Muslims. More terrorism <laughs> is done by Americans than anybody else. If you look at the numbers. And also, if I might add, that hate crimes, mm -hmm. anti-Semitic crimes have gone way up since this guy has been in the White House. Mm -hmm. And it's my belief, I'm not saying it's coming from anybody else, but it's my belief that if the president, the so-called leader of free world, had said some different words at that press conference, if he would have repudiated hate, mm -hmm. if we had repudiated this act of American terrorism, if we repudiated the Klan, alt-right, mm -hmm. the neo-Nazis, I don't think we've had this great surge in hate crimes because, in my opinion, mm -hmm. that press conference was the green light. Yeah, gave him permission. They had, like, the approval. Mm -hmm. Good housekeeping seal of approval. Yeah. Now you got high school kids in Wisconsin giving the Heil Hitler in a photo. They're not even embarrassed. All this stuff. It's unbelievable. And then, and then I mean, who's to say? Would that act of American terrorism and the, the synagogue Pittsburgh happen? Right. I mean, that's, that's, would those letter bombs have gone out? Mm -hmm. I mean, he was really, what he did, that's why he wanted that footage in there. Mm -hmm. That press conference, he was preaching to his hate choir. To me, that 
if you still supported him after Charlottesville, I've ended friendships over that. I don't see how you could possibly justify continuing to support him after that, whether you're black, Jewish, or anything else. Well, when money is involved, mm-hmm. when people pray on bended knee at the altar of the almighty dollar, that's what you get. To say, fuck the guy that got cut up. Right. Oh, yeah, Khashoggi. Yeah. You know, we have a, a great relationship with Saudi Arabia, and they're going to lower the oil. Yeah. So one guy has to die. Yeah. That's the brakes. He goes, Curtis Blow, that's the brakes. He's on the brakes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not funny. I know. I'm not laughing. I mean, because. No, it's sad. It's, it's, it's terrible. It's, 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 I'm not making, please, please, no, I, audience. Totally, totally. No emails. No. I'm not making light no. of a brutal assassination. Yep. But the point I'm trying to make is that when you pray at the altar almighty dollar, you don't care if people get harmed, hurt, or killed. To them, it's like there's a price of doing business. If somebody got somebody got to die, fuck it. Well, that's yeah for for and, these and guys. That, yeah. and, and and he's. I don't think this guy is being bashful about that too. No. He said, "Look, maybe did." Talking about the, yeah, maybe they did it. Maybe yeah, they maybe did. did. Maybe they <laughs> did it. We don't. And then yeah. the CIA. Oh, even before that, he knew that they. Had I know, but, but even with the report yeah. by the CIA yeah. saying, yeah, yeah, the guy did it. Yeah. He's like, well, unbelievable. I mean, he's the stuff he's done to the judicial system. Yeah. FBI. Yeah. CIA. Everything. I mean. Well, so in the context of the Trump era, were you kind of? amazed to learn maybe you knew it already but that 40 years earlier a black guy had managed to infiltrate the kkk it's like I a mel brooks movie so jordan peele called me with the pitch i never heard of and jordan Ron called Stone. you how come you have to ask him okay you have to ask him but he called which cast me one of the greatest steel pitches in six words ever of all time the pitch was six words Black man infiltrates Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> now, you've worked four times with Denzel Washington. Mm-hmm. How did you, in this case, say, not even audition, not anything, I know the right guy for this is John David Washington, his son. I knew he could do it. When did you first meet him? Before he was born. <laughs> when did you first work with him? When did you first work with him? Malcolm X. He's one of the, the young kids at the end of the film that stands up in the classroom and says, my name is Malcolm X. He was six at that time. And then you got to connect, you know, really back to history. You put in there for one of the most amazing monologues that anyone will ever see, Harry Belafonte. Why was it important to put Harry Belafonte in this movie? We needed someone who is a certain age because he's playing someone that was an eyewitness to this act of terrorism. Yeah. And also the weight he brings. I mean, he's been a freedom fighter all his life. He was there next to King. Another thing I like to say is that people forget, you know, there was a Hollywood that was really radical. You look at Dr. King, pictures, Paul Newman, yeah. James Gardner, even Charlton Heston. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that Brooke Lancaster. Yeah. They were there marching with Dr. King. Mm-hmm. You know, and Marlon Brando. Very much, yeah. And they were writing checks, too. So... You know, I don't think that we should forget that. No. So to bring it full circle, this movie premieres at Cannes, back in competition. 
you'd been there over the years since Do the Right Thing with Jungle Fever, which was in competition in 91, Girl 6 out of competition in 96. You know, the Jungle Fever, it's amazing Sam did not get an Oscar nomination for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because in Cannes, they gave him an award. They made up an award. For him, yeah. They were they're like, he's so good. We don't have a, we got to make up an award to give it to him. Supporting award, I think, and yeah. He, I mean, oh, Sam, amazing. Jack's performance in Jungle Fever as Gator, oh my God. Amazing, yeah. So then you were back with Girl 6, which was out of competition in 96, Summer of Sam, part of Director's Fortnite, 99. But this time, in competition, they applaud your signature shot, and you actually take home some hardware, Grand Prix. Mm-hmm. How did that all feel? Just this kind of full, I would imagine, a full circle moment. Well, no I, Vim I, Benders I, I on the jury. It was, <laughs> and again, I like to say this: I have no problem with Can. Yeah. I mean, that thing, Ben Benders, is not will never diminish the good times I've had there, and and it's an honor to be accepted, whether in competition or not, to the greatest, what I feel is the greatest film festival. There is. Mm-hmm. So I always have a good time right. there. And I've come to learn that timing has a lot to do with everything. Yeah. And sometimes to really get you over the hump, things have to, the stars have to align. Yep. And the stars align with this film. And it started at Cannes. Yeah. You know, this is a very timely film. And just one of those things that, you know, you just sit back and, and just enjoy it. It's interesting that you told people before the premiere screening, I think, and then also, I think, before the first L.A. screening at the Academy, which I was at, and you made a point of saying, it's okay to laugh. Yes. Why is that important to tell people? Well, if I had that experience in Bamboozle where, the, <laughs> in fact, there's a scene in Bamboozle where there's something funny, and the white audience members turn to look to see a black <laughs> folks, like, my laugh. I got to get permission right. from black folks to laugh. Right. And... I said that because sometimes audiences don't know how to deal with a film mm-hmm. that has humor with very serious subject matter. I understand that. So I wanted to give the audience members permission. It's okay if you laugh. Right. But at the same time, saying it's still very serious subject matter. And so when you do a film like that, it all comes down to balance. You have to get the right balance between the tone and the serious subject matter. Right. And that's something that my man, Barry Brown, did a great job in, in doing and, and getting the balance in this film. Absolutely. My longtime editor. Yeah. School Days, Do the Right Thing, Mo Better. 30 years, yeah. Malcolm X, Inside Man. To close, mm-hmm. which I know it's been a long one, but I so appreciate it. What keeps you doing this? The only other person who sort of has churned out as many good movies over as consistent a pace as you is in its own way the other New Yorker, Woody Allen, who I don't think is going to be keeping his... Clint Eastwood. Clint, yeah, but not even at your... You, you're talking like every year, every other year with you. But look at Clint. I mean, he, how old is he now? Just, he got a film coming out called The Mule. No, it's amazing, but he hasn't been directing for 35 years or whatever every year. Well... All right, so, but what keeps you doing it? You could slow down. You could relax. You no, could, I'm doing what I love. Okay. Last question. You and your family, I believe, something like 20 years ago, moved to the Upper East Side. Mm -hmm. And yet you still keep your production company's offices here in Brooklyn and come here, from what I understand, almost every day. Right. Why? Well, you don't have to live where your office is. Make your life a lot easier to have your office near where you live. My my wife said we had to leave Brooklyn. 
Everybody in Brooklyn knew where I lived. <laughs> I was ringing the bell at 4 o'clock in the morning. Right. Saying, Spike was my second cousin's third grade <laughs> class. And my wife had enough. Right. Said, we got to go. Right. But you didn't want to leave. I wouldn't leave. My, I wasn't going to choose Brooklyn over my, my wife and my daughter, <laughs> who was like a year old. Does it tell us something about you that Spike Lee may live in on the Upper East Side, but he has not left Brooklyn? To be honest, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> well, that could be the answer to most of this, right? <laughs> People can live where they want to live. And uh, I was not going to break up my family right. to live. My, I think my, you just my, didn't my, want to move all this cool memorabilia no, after this, schlep uh, it. This is accumulation over the years. But <laughs> no. I was not going to. Tanya said, you know, look, she said, you got to make a choice. Right. Your year old daughter, me or Brooklyn. Right. And right. it was like the Jack Benny thing. Yeah. Said, what is this? <laughs> I'm thinking. <laughs> oh, man. Well, this is, this is such an honor to all have right, you man. do this. Thanks so much. Cool. Really right, appreciate you. it. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.